Hello to you, dear listener, and welcome to you. This is Jason Traeger, Traeger Method Podcast, episode number 82. That's what we're getting into today. My guest today is our dear friend, uh, return guest, Sean Kelly. He's back. It's really good to talk to Sean again. What do we talk about? We talk about Sinead O'Connor, her passing, her legacy, her life. Pee Wee Herman, celebrate the life of Pee Wee, his impact. Looking through my notes. I write notes when I edit conversations that I've recorded. Look through. We talk about UAP, UFO uh, disclosure and ideas about these revelations that nobody seems to care about. Why is it that no one cares? Talk about our love of music and musical instruments. I should do a suicide warning, a trigger warning. We do get into that subject. Suicide death in general. Talk about pain. There's some kidney stone talk. Trigger, trigger, trigger method. That's the trigger, trigger method. What other gross and disturbing stuff is in the climate change? That's gross and disturbing. Sean talks about baby Wren. Uh, his daughter, my uh, honorary niece, or whatever you want to call it, non-bloodline niece. Um, her her sores and her foot and mouth disease or whatever she had. We talk about that. So there's sick babies, there's climate change, there's suicide, there's kidney stones. And along the way, we have some fun. We have some laughs. It's a pretty gent. It's it's a more lighthearted conversation than than what I just said might suggest. I, I I should probably say that. I do have a kind of a heavy heart right now. I was just reading about the fires and looking at photos and uh, videos about the fires in Lahaina, Hawaii, Maui. I love Hawaii very much. It's a very dear place to me and to so many. We all love Hawaii. Um, and and just reading about these. Uh, horrible fires you know it, it brings up a lot of the, some of the stuff i talk about in uh in this podcast often climate change the grief surrounding it the existential questions and concerns that come up in regard to it and our response roles the way we hold climate change in our lives and along with grief there's also anger fury rage not just at fossil fuel companies, but at, you know, like in the case of Hawaii, at the whole legacy of colonialism, extractive capitalism, all that bad stuff. You know, when you look at the fires in Hawaii, a lot of them were caused by the big accelerant there is these grasslands that have grown up where the sugarcane fields used to be, the pineapple fields. These landowners have let grasslands take the place of those crops that have since been, you know, the production of them has been moved to other cheaper places, less remote places in the global South, typically. The plantations are gone. Tourism is the primary business or, you know, economic driver of the islands, of course, now. Grasslands, they burn like crazy in the dry season, in the drier, hotter months. I mean, they can. 
Hawaii didn't used to be a tinderbox. Now it is. And when Hawaii burns, it's not like here on the mainland when where you know wildfires are part of the a natural part of the forest ecosystem, and the trees have adapted bark and things like that to for that. Of course, they burn hotter now than they ever did. So the forests are being burned at a higher rate than they used to be and with more damage because of climate change. But in Hawaii, you know, nothing evolved that way. It's not supposed to burn regularly. It's a tropical island. But now you got the burns like this. Then there's erosion in the wake of the burns. The erosion goes into the ocean, kills the coral. It's a bad, bad scene. I read a hopeful article in The Guardian about some Hawaiians who are replanting old-school, original-style food forests. You know, getting away from this monoculture type of farming, corporate type of farming, letting plants work with one another, work with the soil, work with the elements in a way that's healthy to produce food for people and produce healthy plants. But yeah, today my heart goes out very much to all the people in Hawaii have, who have lost their homes, all the people who are horribly uh, traumatized and injured. A lot of burns, of course. It's very, 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 very sad. And that's just, you know, this is just a place that's near and dear to my heart and to the hearts of many listeners, I'm sure. But, you know, all around the planet, we got this stuff going on. And this, and we are, you know, yeah, it's very infuriating. To, to see jackasses it's not happening i mean what did ron DeSantis just put out a thing it's fine to teach prager you courses about how fossil fuels are not causing any problems you know these morons at the end of this age are just desperate they'll do anything to just lie i always think about these these this tendency well it's now just the way all the right wing operates 100%. You know, where it's everything has to be a lie, disinformation. Doesn't doesn't it ever occur to people that like, hmm, if everything I believe in has to be supported by lying and obfuscation and deceit and half-truths and weird spin, doesn't that imply that maybe it's not the right thing to do? Doesn't occur to them? No, no. It's like everything you live for is a lie. If all the things you try to propagate and sell are based on dishonesty, isn't there some like basic thing in people's hearts that goes, hmm, maybe I'm on the wrong side. I guess not. I guess not. As long as you get what you want somehow. Ugh. It's very, very disturbing. And here's one more thing specifically about Hawaii. If these billionaires who've bought, who've bought up these islands... Don't pony up. You know, Jesus Christ. Bezos, Peter Thiel, Oprah, you know, they've all had these massive estates on Maui. Come on. Bezos could write a check tomorrow and give everybody a house. You know, give everybody, rebuild everything. You know, if I see him ponying up, like, we're, we're give, whatever. You know what I'm saying. I mean, Peter Thiel, of course, I don't expect anything from him. Oprah, come on bunch of us just kicking in 60 bucks here and there. It's like you guys could just, with a stroke of a pen, you could rebuild the entire town of Lahaina. It'd be nothing to you. You're, 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 I know Oprah's listening. I know, I know Jeff listens. So Jeff, this is for you. Come on, man. Do the right thing. 
That's pretty funny. Asking a billionaire to do the right thing. Come on, bro. Rainforest Summit this week. Rather, Amazonian Summit is what I meant to say specifically. Amazonian Summit this week. You know, the, all the Amazonian countries, they formed a pact and they're demanding money from the rich nations for Amazonian preservation. Come on. Yes. Everything has to be about saving the Amazon, preserving the Amazon. Can't have any more of this Bolsonaro crap, uh, you know, killing indigenous leaders, burning the place to the ground so that we can have McDonald's hamburgers, you know. We gotta save the Amazon, it's imperative. The lungs of the planet, also it's like something like 2% of Amazonian plants have been, I don't know, it's, it's like there's so much potential medicine in the Amazon. If we understood better the wisdom of the indigenous people and had a re reciprocal relationship with the indigenous Amazonian people, paid them for their wisdom, allowed them to work to preserve the Amazon like they do already, but a lot, instead of fighting against them. Everything's got to change on this planet. I mean, it's got to. It just does. We need shifts in consciousness big time. We'll talk more about that in the future for sure. Amazonian preservation. And talk Sinead for a minute. Sinead O'Connor, you might have noticed if you follow my Instagram account. I imagine you do if you listen to this. I've been posting a ton of Sinead stuff. Trying to celebrate her, her life, her music, her message. You know, it's it, a lot of people it's, have expressed the fury about how she was so ridiculed. She was so put down, blacklisted, whatever, uh, you know, just curbed. And for what? For telling the truth, for speaking her truth, for being a genuine person, for being an honest person. You know, that'll get you a lot of tr trouble in this world, especially if you're a woman speaking th these truths. Going up against power entrenched power and it's very heroic to do that in the face of all that anyways in a way that seems so fearless and so beautiful you know that's the thing ultimately her great power was just her sheer talent you know the amazing voice that she had and how she used it you know she she made the point that doesn't matter what kind of voice you have if you if you if you don't use it for the right things. And she did that fearlessly and I celebrate her, honor her and I will continue to study her life, understand it better. And you know, rather than just being heartbroken about the loss of someone like her, try to live by ex her example. You know, go out there, listen to her interviews, understand what she was saying. And when she says to be yourself, if you're an artist, to be your honest self, to speak your truth, you know, listen to that, those words, Jason. I'm talking to myself. Do that. That's the best way to honor a person like her that you love. Speaking of voices who have had an impact on me, Sinead going back to my teenage years, which were also her teenage years. I mean, God, that's amazing. Um... Another one, but, but you know, Sinead, in, in that respect, going back to my teenage years, one voice that I just recently encountered for the first time 
is a person named Joshua Con Russell. Do you know who he is? Do you listen to the Rev Left podcast? I recently rediscovered that podcast. Fantastic. Brett O'Shea. He does three podcasts. That's one of them. It's so good. It uh, And this guest that he had, he had a three-parter with Joshua Con Russell, who is the director of the Wildfire Project. Wildfire Project being, how does it describe itself? How do they describe it? On the Wildfire Project website, they say, the Wildfire Project strengthens social movements across sector by supporting grassroots, grassroots groups to transform and spread a thriving culture. Groups resilient in the face of challenging terrain who know how to strategize are grounded in history, their vision, and have a connection to a North Star bigger than themselves, have healthy internal practices, know how to build a cross identity, are rooted in compassion and gratitude, can navigate contradiction, and are prepared to grow and win material gains towards freedom. That's what they do. He is a facilitator amongst these grassroots groups. He works also uh, in the climate change, whatever you want to call it, climate crisis sector in South America. And he, uh, th these, th this three-parter that's on Rev Left with him was so helpful to me. My God, just hearing somebody speak with such clarity and understanding about how we have to work on our inner selves, quote-unquote, the spiritual, quote-unquote, side of things, in tandem with working on these material, outer, quote-unquote, things. I always have to put the quotes around these things because I don't personally believe the inner and the outer are separate. It's all one, quote unquote. <laughs> also, uh, non-duality, how, how do you speak in a non-dualistically correct way? You can't, but anyway, you know what I'm grasping towards. Let's just skip all the, the correct language and just say, he is all about, you know, getting the, the, the soul right getting a peaceful heart uh, taking care of oneself S building sustainability when facing these situations like what i'm talking about going up against the catholic church uh, going up against the corporate duopoly going up against the you know, echoes of our historical crimes. Well, not mine, right? But, you know, it's so much of this stuff, it's all about that settler colonialism, extractive capitalist thing. You know, you look at Sinead O'Connor, the trauma she was talking about growing up in Ireland, the trauma that the church did, you know, everybody's terrible, you know, that whole thing, you're no good the Catholic Church's product line. And, you know, be 800 years of British colonial extractive, you know, the whole potato famine, whole reason my family came to live in this country probably was the potato famine. It wasn't a potato famine. That was a, you know, thing that was put on the Irish. All the wheat and all the other crops were being exported for profit out of Ireland. And all Irish people were basically allowed to eat was potatoes, this monoculture thing. You guys probably all know this. And then when that crop failed, everybody died. I had to move. 
wasn't just some natural disaster, just like this fire in Hawaii. It's not some natural disaster. Same kind of factors. A little different, of course, but similar. We've got to grow sugar and pineapples that we can go sell around the world. That creates the grasslands that burn, climate change. Let's pull all these fossil fuels out, burn them, create an economy based on the burning of them, have a monopoly of it, split the shares between, you know, a few giant corporations. You get the idea of what I'm talking about. This colonial extractive thing is running through all these traumas, all this destruction. The capitalist system that most of us find very alienating. And even if you thrive in it and you just you just feel so at home in it, it's still killing the planet. Like I said to Sean, we talk about that stuff. So how great is it really? The idea that it can't be replaced by something else. I'm going to do a lot more learning. You know, I, I've been seeing that part of my, you know, depression that I had for many, many years. Don't, I don't know that I have it still. But, you know, whatever that means. It, everything comes and goes. But you know what I'm saying. I think. Do you? Maybe. I think many people are sort of looking at that thing, going like, what is depression and what is just living in an alienated capitalist end times scenario? You know, late stage. Late stage C. Late stage cap. How much of my personal anxiety is actually a much larger anxiety? How much did not having access to health care contribute to my fear for all those many years? Hmm. How much does seeing mentally disturbed people all over on the streets living by their out of trash cans, how much does that disturb my soul on a day-to-day -day basis? How much does that make create fear in me? Not of them necessarily, or usually, almost almost never, but fear of the system that is comfortable with that and the society that's comfortable with that or that is uncomfortable but allows it, you know, it's scary. I don't like that. You know, the fatigue of that stuff, like nowadays it's like it used to be when it would snow, I'd be like, oh, it's so pretty, it's snowing. Now I always think of all the people that are sleeping in the streets. You know, that's always there. Like you can't get that one out. You can't just go, oh, it's nice. It's snowy. It's beautiful. You have to always be thinking about that. And there's people freezing in the cold. Why? They don't have to. And you start looking at this stuff and you can just get into that hopeless place. Oh, my God, it's so dark. I mean, Sean Kelly, today's guest, sent me a thing recently, article about this $47 trillion that were moved into private hands over the course of some, I, I didn't even read the whole article of the intercept, but you know, it was one of those ones where you just go, Jesus Christ. Like we are just all part of this. Uh, it's the greatest fleecing, the greatest theft uh, that's ever occurred this age. Let me wrap this intro up. It's uh, you know, me and Sean's, uh, interview is pretty pretty long. I, you know, it doesn't have to be short. This can be long. I listened to a three and a half hour, four hour long Rev Left radio thing. I enjoyed that. I listened to it twice. An interview with Joshua Con Russell by host Brett O'Shea. Fantastic host. 
I got to have both those guys on the podcast. I listened to that four hour long podcast about ayahuasca. Jonathan Con Russell, Joshua, rather, Con Russell is a uh, ayahuasca adherent. Um, you can't say user and you can't say practitioner because he doesn't, uh, he's not an ayahuascaro, but he is a person like myself who has a relationship with the medicine. And he speaks about it incredibly articulately, incredibly nuanced and carefully and very wisely. He put off talking about it for 10 years, he says in this interview um, that I listened to. I'll have links to these things. I'm introducing a new character to the podcast. He hasn't been a guest yet, but hopefully he will be in the future. But he talks about it with great care. And uh, why did I bring that up? Yes, I brought it up because I was saying I don't need to worry about having a two and a half hour podcast. I was I met with a friend to have coffee the other day, a friend of mine I hadn't seen in many years named Jeff. He was talking about his desire to do a podcast. And hello, if you're listening, Jeff. Hi. It's nice to have coffee with you. Um, he was talking about his desire to do a podcast. And one thing I was saying to him is like, just remember, because he was, he was talking about maybe trying to get over a hurdle to actually do it. You know, he has the setup and he's sort of going, I don't know, do I keep, do I just, you know, what's the next step? What do I do? And I was like, well, just remember if you have resistance to getting started, just remember it's podcasting. It can be a five minute long thing where you just talk about that. You don't know what you're doing. Put it out. There's episode one. Boom. Doesn't have to be long. Doesn't have to be short doesn't have to be about anything this is podcasting it's a new medium it's it's liquid like we are i know i am drinking water right now made of the stuff there it is did you hear that gulp i even leave those in i don't care squeaky chair gulps my burps you know you've heard a few burps and past episodes not this one i'm feeling non bilious is the right word yeah but anyways yeah so what was i uh i got sidetracked it's fine to do a long intro with a long episode it doesn't matter the inner work i've been doing a lot of that in the past couple of years you've heard that on the podcast you've seen if you go back through the whole thing you'll see you know, when I was in my deepest, one a very, very deep or coming out of it or whatever, depression, I was there. And now look at me today. I'm meditating every single day. I'm doing yoga. I'm staying centered. I've got this ayahuasca practice once or twice a year. I'm centered in a way that I, I don't think that I ever have been. Doesn't mean I I don't sound like a basket case sometimes when I talk. I, I'll hear I'll listen to. I mean, God, I've recorded a conversation with Brian Gathy of the End on End podcast. That'll be the next episode. I don't usually announce ahead of time what I'm going who, who my guest will be next week or whatever. Next it'll be next week. Uh, Brian Gathy of the End on End podcast. If you know who Brian is and you listen to that podcast, it's a he goes through every Discord release, Discord records release in order. 
talks about them with a guest, typically, and his co-host. He does a few podcasts. He does three. Now, we're talking about doing another. We're talking about doing one together. That'll make four for him, two for me. But you'll hear you'll hear all about that next week when that podcast drops. But anyways, what I was going to say was I was listening to that one, editing it. And I was just like, oh, my God, I sound like a rambling. Uh, a rambling maniac or something. My my the way I was speaking, I'm just talking over myself and cutting myself off, and I you know, my voice is kind of like yeah yeah well you know that I'm all you know like when I do these intros, I relax, I get into the voice, I'm chill, I can just stop anytime. Hmm, what was that thing I was talking about? Click. Oh, look it up, get back. It's very relaxed, but sometimes in conversation, I get. Real, like, uh, man, I don't know what the style is. It's just, and I think to myself when I listen back to it, you know, in the real time, it feels good. Like, I remember at the end of that Brian Gathy interview, I said, I'm not even going to have to edit this one. This was good. I'm just going to release it as it is. That's how I thought the interview went, or the, con- it wasn't an interview, it was a conversation. But, uh, I listened back to it and I was like, gee, I started trying to edit this thing. And it's not Brian at all. This is me. I was like chopping out whole sections. I'm saying the same thing five different times in different ways. The same thing over and over. I'm trying to chop it up and I just get lost in this hall of mirrors where I'm like, I don't even know what I was talking about. How do I make this part match up with the next one? But you'll, you'll hear it next week. You'll, you'll see what I'm saying. But the main thing that I guess what I was what I'm getting at is this right intention. It's a Buddhist precept, one of the eight noble truths, or no, eightfold path, I guess. Four noble truths, eightfold eightfold path, right? And one of them is having the right intention. And you know what I can say? I have the right intention with this podcast. It might be imperfect. It might be, you know, whatever. It is what it is, but. I do know I'm coming from a right intention. I want to spread joy. Remember back on uh, episode 50 when I talked with Ian. Ian McKay. Uh, when I talked with him, he said it's, uh, he, he described the podcast as a joy spreader or something like that. He said it's, it's a joy spreader. And I was like, that's, that's a nice way. To, that's a nice review. I'm glad that, that anyone would feel that way, Ian or anybody else. And, uh, yeah. And I also hope it's an information spreader and I, I, and I want to draw you to voices that I care about. So I, I've got a lot of directions I want to go. There's a lot of punk in it, but there's a lot of non-punk subjects coming up. Doesn't matter. It's the Traeger method. It can be anything. It's going to develop. Also, do you guys listen to the Blind Boy podcast? Do you know the Blind Boy podcast? I never talk about it, or have I? I don't know that I ever have. Maybe I've kept that a little bit of a secret because I kind of aspire to be more like the Blind Boy. 
That's the name he goes by. He doesn't have a public name. He wears a bag over his head. It's a huge podcast. I mean, he's had like a massive write-up in the New York Times recently about how great it is. It's an Irish podcast. He had Sinead O'Connor on that pod. It's great. Great interview. He does just uh, such fascinating things. It's usually just him talking, though he does do interviews occasionally. He has hot takes, he calls them, on various subjects. And they're so insightful and interesting. And, you know, sometimes I think oh, I should be like the blind boy. I wish I was as good as that. I wish I'd take the time to, you know, research, spend all week working on a podcast. Like if I made a living at this, I could do that. But I have to do that first in order for it to grow, to be a thing that I could make a living at. But that'd be kind of cool to make a living podcasting. You know, I never, I have a problem sometimes. I, 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 I don't even allow for the idea that what I, I have to change this. I often don't even allow for the idea that what I do creatively could sustain me. I have a, a false belief that what I do, whether it's painting, you know, on various visual arts or music, comedy, podcasting, I have a kind of built-in feeling that like, no, what if I do it, it's not going to bring in anything. It's going to bring in very little. But, you know, as I change my relationship to myself, quote unquote, I'm starting to see, oh, yeah, all these old stories and scripts about how things will go or what I'm like, you know, what, what my nature is. They're all out the window. You know, I'll do stuff nowadays and I'm going, I'm playing an open mic. I don't feel weird about it at all. I don't feel bad about it at all. I thought that's the kind of thing I felt bad about. Like, oh, well, I should have been better. I should have gotten further earlier or something like that. But now I don't feel that way. I'm just into it. I just do it. I like it. You know, if I have to do a lot of different things that I thought, oh, well, that's not something you like. That's not something you want to do. I'll do it now. And I'm like, it's not that painful. Or it's not, or it's might be painful, but I'm curious about the pain. I'm, I'm interested in it. I learn from it. Who cares? I'm finding that over and over. And I kind of have to remind myself that that's the way I'm doing life now. And not just now and then, but all the time. You know, depressive kind of thought clusters come up and I just go, hey, I know you guys. I know you're trying to protect me. It's cool. And they just kind of quiet down. I'm not saying everybody can change their depressive stuff. Maybe it's chemical. But for me, I've noticed, man, this, this, these actions that I take, you know, like I said, meditation, watching the diet, very, very limited, incredibly limited alcohol intake, incredibly limited marijuana, none really. But, you know, I just don't have cravings for that stuff. I don't want to be obliterated. I don't want to get lost in things. I, I, I know it's bad for me. I want to live. I want to be healthy. I'm, I'm, you know, just don't have the craving. It's, it really has lifted. It's just not a thing. That's something about uh, years ago when I did 12-step programs, I used to you know, hear the thing about like, once you're an addict, you're always an addict. Anytime you start using, you're going to, it's going to lead to jails, institution or death. You know, if you're here in this room, that means, you know, you're an addict. 
And if you, this is how I interpreted it. And I don't know if this is really true or if there's wiggle room for certain people or whatever. I mean, everybody does it their own way, right? But uh, for me, I sort of took that message. And, and it's one of the things that kind of drove me away from those meetings. I thought, well, that's, I don't know that that's me. You know, I haven't lived the kind of life where I've never used the kind of substances that are life or death, you know, like heroin, I mean, if opiates, stimulants, meth or whatever, you know, that wasn't my thing. It was usually just weed and alcohol. So it was a slow burn kind of thing. And not even super bingy, just kind of maintenance uses of those things. Pretty bingy with alcohol in, in my youth, but 20s, 30s, not so much. Just kind of a maintenance thing. A little treat. You get that treat. And if I'm totally honest, porn would be in there too. Sorry. You know, just a little treat. A little something to just focus on and go, eh. Little endorphin lift of some kind or whatever. These things, you know, you just kind of use them day in and day out now and then or, you know, regularly because life is basically shitty. So, you know, or it's just so hard. Why not just give yourself anything that gives you a little lift as long as your life doesn't fall apart and you don't do terrible things because of them? Yeah, you deserve it. Whatever. You don't get all the good stuff that some people get. So you get this little treat. That was kind of how addiction was for me, mostly. And I guess as I've changed, I just am interested in what's it like to not do that? What's it like to not? What space opens up when you don't seek that easy, quick, feel good? You know, is the pain so great or the hollowness, the emptiness of not sort of filling that space? And this goes for, for less, uh, for other things too, like looking at the internet or just entertainment or whatever, all the distractions we can do. You know, what happens if you don't scroll? Just curious, how bad is it when you don't? How bad is it? And then also when you do, good habits, when you, when you, when you show up for yourself, like I could easily not do yoga today. Easily. I could easily not meditate today. Very, very easily. No problem not meditating. But what if you do it anyways, even though you don't want to, even though you don't feel, you know, what happens? What do you notice? I always notice feeling good. And I notice always with those other things, when you don't fill the hole, it's like, Oh, that feels good too. It'd be kind of uncomfortable in the immediate sitting with it or whatever, but uh, when you don't feel it, it's like, oh, it's okay. I survived. And you know, we are, I mean, in some ways, we are the habits we adopt, you know, and the ones we sustain. You know, what is it? There's two wolves inside me. You know, which one do you feed? I don't know. But 
okay, overall, what I'm trying to get at, what, you know, what, what am I groping towards? What am I trying to talk about? Just, um, treat yourself kindly face, face the problems, face the tendencies, accept total acceptance. Start from that. You know, you don't get anywhere. It's not, it's not going to help you to not accept yourself where you are. I mean, everybody's going to tell you that. All the Buddhist teachers and stuff. Pema Chodron, start where you are. There's no other place. You can't start two steps ahead of where you are. You start where you are. Start from acceptance. You know, sometimes I look at myself and I think, in the past, you know, I would look at myself and go, always this thing of like if only this had happened if you got it started earlier you'd be ahead now what no start where you are and this acceptance thing it's like yeah really you know what if you know i look at the the, the things about myself that i would want to change that i would love to see changed uh aspects of how i am that you know, like when I was talking about being all rambly on that podcast with Brian. I wish I was more articulate. I wish I was more wise sounding and less frantic sounding. Well, sometimes I'm not. Like, I don't feel frantic right now. I feel kind of wise. I feel like some wisdom kind of vibe is coming out. It's a different day. It's a different circumstance. Different chemical, you know sugars or whatever in my body, you know, whatever it is, different amount of water, different amount of sleep. We change, we flow, we're liquid. We're different from day to day. Don't get hung up on, you know, some way that reality presents right now or that you present. You know, and, and, and then certainly don't worry or get fixated on how other people perceive you. Because that's just, like I was saying to my friend Jeff the other day, that's just a song you present to the public. You know, nobody knows who you are. You don't know who you are. You don't have a fixed self. And we like to think we can find a fixed self that's a good one and stay there, but it doesn't work that way. We're always moving, always changing. There's no fixed you. It's a work in progress. It's a ever-changing, kaleidoscopic thing you know this idea that we're just working towards perfection self-improvement i don't even think i'm on a self-improvement path i mean you could say it is but it's not really i'm not trying to improve the self i'm trying to reduce the self just have less of the self this because the self in my mind is that fixed thing you know no i don't just go with the flow i am the flow that's how i like to think about it you don't just go with the flow. You are the flow. You know, if I'm, and maybe it's okay that I'm scattered. Maybe it's okay that one day I'm inspired and the next day I'm not. You know, maybe it's somebody else's priority that I would be otherwise. Maybe it's okay that I'm chronically underemployed, shall we say. Maybe it's okay that I've always struggled with money. Not being frugal. I'm good at frugality, but making it, no, not, not a strong suit. Not something I've ever thrived at. And maybe that's okay. 
you know, even if it leads to disaster or quote unquote disaster. I do a lot of quotes, you noticed. Like, maybe even that's okay. Like, if there's consequences for being the way I am or whatever, there's bad results, you know, what, or even just, what if it's okay? Maybe that's the question. Not that maybe it's okay, but what if it is okay? What does that open up for me? If I say to myself, what if it's okay? You know, if you add that what if to things, it, it, it allows in some kind of curiosity. It allows in some curiosity. What if I don't have to change? What if that person thinks I'm a certain way? What if? Can you live with that? Yeah. What if that person thinks you're great? I could live with that. What if that person thinks you're shit heel? I can live with that. What if you don't meditate today? Oh my God. What if you, what if you don't follow through on that commitment to yourself? What would that do? You know, like <clears throat> meditation, I was telling, talking with Sean Kelly about it. He's a, uh, not on the podcast, but the other night at his house, I was over there visiting with Sean, Allison Wolf, previous Trigger Method guest. <laughs> Allison was in town. She's in town. So Sean, Allison, and I got together in his back deck and we had food. We went to the food pods, bought some stuff and came back, ate it there. And we were chatting, talking. And afterwards, as I was leaving, Sean and I were talking meditation for some reason. And he was like, I still don't get how to do it. How, what do you do? I was like, dude, I've said this many times, but I'll say it again. Sit, quietly, breathe, and when you notice a thought, say thoughts. Next thought you notice, next time you catch yourself noticing a thought, say thoughts or thought to yourself, you know, quietly in your head. That's a thought. That's a thought. That's a thought. No thought for a while, that's, then you notice, oh, that's a thought that I noticed there's no thoughts. You know, that's it. Nothing else to it. No way to get it wrong. Doesn't matter if another thought appears. You're not trying to have less of them or, or more of them or more space or less thoughts. You just, it's all about learning that flow thing. It's all it is. That's why it's valuable. Because it teaches you in this very, you know, straightforward way or whatever very tangible way to or to 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 learn that practice because if you don't attach to thoughts like a big agenda or a big weight then you'll find that everything else in life becomes a little lighter it just i think it just does maybe maybe not maybe you won't find that but for me i find that you know, the more I understand this thing, this technique, or whatever you want to call it, that this practice of watching thoughts, naming them as thoughts, the more I notice in life, I'm less attached to these fixed ideas about everything. Even bad, you know, things that, uh, like climate change, you know, that I know exactly what it is and what it's leading towards and what the uh, 
perpetrators of it, who they are and what it is and what must be crushed. It's like, dude, you don't know enough about anything to be fully, we don't even know what consciousness is. You know what I'm saying? Like to be fully grim about anything, like I know it and it's terrible or I know it and it's great. You don't know. You don't know enough to be fully, fully committed to the reality that you perceive. That's it. So anyways, next week, um, I will have a conversation with Brian Gathy of the End on End podcast, and we'll be talking about our potential Buddhist non-duality spirituality uh, podcast that we're going to do. It's going to be a fun conversation. I'm going to edit the shit out of it, try and make it into something that I don't feel totally that just to make it more a better. I'm not trying to hide how weird I thought I sounded, but, um, and maybe if I listen to it again, I won't even find, you know, that's the other thing. Maybe I won't even find it as bad as I did when I was sitting there editing it, you know? Like sometimes it's it's not only, you know, the person that was in the conversation who's different, the person listening to the conversation is also changing. It's this movable feast. Is that the right term? It's a hall of mirrors. You know, everything's changing. The merry-go-round is spinning perspectives. The the one watching it is changing. The one being watched is changing. So just lighten up, don't tighten up. Jason, I'm talking to myself again. All right. Well, that is a 45-minute introduction. Almost 46 minutes. We're heading into the 46-minute introduction zone. We've got a two-hour conversation come up, so if you want to, just take a break. Get an ice-cold beverage and come on back or whatever, or just keep listening. So, yeah, so the introduction, the little music that you're going to hear in a second here, as it, um, just after I introduce the episode with Sean, the, the conversation with Sean is a little clip of 91X Radio from 1984, San Diego, the sound of alternative rock. Sean and I talk about 91X on the in the in the conversation. So just to let you know, that's why I'm I'm going to have 91X radio from 1984 as a bumper okay i don't want you to be baffled by that but i do want you to be happy you're listening to the trigger method podcast i'm very happy you are listening to the trigger method podcast thank you support it patreon i either do become active on it or i don't it's that's it i'm not going to say i should become active on patreon i'm just going to say yeah there is a Patreon thing you can support the podcast through Traeger Method, or you can do it through the uh, Spotify app. I prefer Patreon. Either way is great, but you know what I'm saying. If you want to give a one-time donation to the pod because you like it, you can PayPal me. You can Venmo me. jason Traeger one at Venmo. I appreciate it very, very much. Okay. Now I um, am honored and happy to share with you my conversation with one of my oldest, dearest, best friends, really a brother to me. Come on, let's just be real about it. My, my, my brother in life, Sean 
Patrick Kelly. The Amazing 80s. Air Chase by Radio Mania. Susie and the Banshees and Belladonna from Hyena on 91X. Got a copy of that album to give away. I'll tell you what I'll do. Um, it's Lucy's celebration week this week. You know, the anniversary of the I Love Lucy show. So, uh, how about a bit of Lucy trivia, huh? Tell you what, be the first person to call and tell me the correct answer to this, and I'll give you the album, all right? Ricky Ricardo, what was the name of the fictitious nightclub he worked in in the I Love Lucy series, huh? The name of the fictitious nightclub is right there on the tip of your tongue. 570-191X gets Hyena, all right? August 1st, August 1st, 2023. We're here in Portland, Oregon with Sean Kelly. Rolling. Here I am. Here so we you are. So you were just saying that uh, you were you were you were yawning but not cuz you're tired but nervous yawning. Cuz you're going public. Yeah. Yawny. They you're, call me Yawny. You're on the pod. Yeah, I get that too. <clears throat> I was yawning before I did those open mics and that I used to used to yawn before a comedy show. It's a weird thing. I only I don't know if I've ever perceived it enough to talk about it before this second. <laughs> Cuz when I yawned and you were like, "Oh yeah, that's so yeah, that's the energy we need." We need eye it. roll. <laughs> <laughs> Want to and I realized like, "Well, I'm not tired. What is that?" And I go, "Oh, it's it's kind of a uh nervous anticipation uh reaction and then i realized like before i before i ever played any shows i would always yawn and people thought i was tired and i'm like no opposite i don't know why yawning is happening though isn't it, it i think it has something to do with like but yawning is not just reaction taking in re oxygen it's like a i guess it is yeah it's built in you take in oxygen yeah i think it is i think it's it's fascinating it's a fascinating thing we know nothing about, so let's talk about it. We'll do a whole episode about that in the future. <laughs> nervous yawning. Hey, callers, anybody listening, if you want to call in, if you yawn while you're nervous, call us It'll up. It'll be fascinating hear us, hearing us talk about something we, have no, no, we know nothing about. Let's get into it. Let's um, speculate. It's the American way. Speculate wildly, develop an intense opinion, and stick about to it. something that you've done Absolutely, you know nothing about and have never looked into. And defend that Perfect. belief, your belief, with a gun. <laughs> Kill anyone who's against you. America, American, America. To quote Julie from Sin 34. We're rolling. Traeger <laughs> Method Podcast, episode number 82. What were you doing in 1982, Sean? What was I doing in 1982? I think I just moved. I think, oh yeah, I just, I think I just moved from Australia to san diego so why don't you have an australian accent um because i want the i want people to respect me <laughs> you can't you can't speaking of can't australia yeah dude last night i saw T talk to me the australian horror movie that just oh came out. i read about it so fucking good yeah oh is it God. super creep is it super creepy oh it's creepy it's 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 engaging it's just excellent i heard it was in the same who directed it i'm these two dudes they're called raka raka right. they're twin brothers i uh, i are they australian they're australian southern australian. southern australia australian. which has its own kind of accent i think and uh yeah they're like these two <clears throat> I was watching. They are Tasmaniacs. Um, they, uh, I watched. Do you ever do that? I, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I'll watch. At age fifty-five, <laughs> occasionally I watch like people that are just so full of enthusiasm that's like physical, just 
the energy just coming out of them. And I just think I, I couldn't, there's no part of me that has that much energy. No, it's funny. I'm and just it's such a fine mellow. line because I see that sometimes I see those people and I go, Oh God, I'm so jealous to be that yeah. full of energy and enthusiasm. And, or they're just, they just appear like crazy people. Maniacs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, these two brothers, they're, they're twins too. So it's yeah. like twin energy that's also like just off the charts just bouncing with enthusiasm and pure joy i was like man i don't know it's just interesting to watch Hella but anyways gel. they were talking about their um their journey towards getting this film made and then you know the getting it's like one of those ones where we did it and then it gets picked up by Sundance and then it gets the number one theater at Sundance and then it gets picked up by A24 and we're all just losing our fucking minds. And, and then you watch the movie and you're like, I see why this I'm thing so, is I'm so bummed good. I didn't watch it because it would see it because it would make a good conversation because what I did read about it, the themes, the underlying themes of it are so interesting. Like the horror is based on a manifest, the manifestations of grief. Like because someone's right parent died or something, or it's, and that's what drives them to. See, I wish I had seen the movie. I'm so frustrated. Well, I'm but sorry anyway. I brought it up before you saw yeah, it. Well, I just had to throw it out there okay. because of the Australian jag that Time to you go. brought up. So we're coming back around to right. your story. Everybody out there, see, talk to me, call in, tell us what you think. Phone lines and are open. Rub it in Sean's face and for rub not it in seeing it, yes, which I might not ever because of my two-year-old doesn't prevents me from enjoying life everything comes out in streaming though so you yeah you missed the only get together we had I know, I know, last I know. week because of your goddamn toddler i know it's it's uh it's heartbreaking it was it's a, frustrating but you did but get to see the do? kg night in portland which yeah was and i did also... get to clean my uh child's uh dripping sores all over her body why from... did you allow your child to become covered in sores I just don't care that much about her. Like, I just... It's basic neglect. Yeah, I just... I've got things to do. I've got movies to see. <laughs> that you don't actually... <laughs> that I don't actually see. So what happened to baby <laughs> Ren? She just got... Well, she had a she had a really horrendous, what appeared to be a flesh-eating rash on the back of her leg, which was the product of her sitting in a filthy drainage puddle that was adjacent to a very very lovely um and clean children's splash pad but she chose the sewage puddle when i had my back turned for like three <laughs> seconds so she must have had like i don't know she just some sort of like it the bacteria can get in through like an ingrown hair or yeah. something like that so it infected the back of her leg so just horrible, scabby, oozy, just terrible. And then she got hand, foot, and mouth. Is it a disease? I don't know what it's called. Sounds gnarly when you it's add a virus. To it. But it got she got like sores in her mouth and on her feet and on her hands and Oof. all the other things that it says that it affects. Yeah, it was terrible. And that happened. Like I was really, really uh, upset about not being able to go to Olympia. But then, uh, if I had, then I wouldn't have been there for my very suffering child. So it's all part of Jaws' plan. For things us. happen for a reason. Yeah. So, anyway. so in '82, you moved from Australia to San Diego. And you're yeah, not, was, you're, uh, but you weren't in Australia, and you were you had been there for how many years? One year. One year. Yeah. But one childhood year, which is. A, 
I was there for twenty. I was years there for eighth grade. Eighth grade, yeah, I think eighth grade. I was in Australia. Did you go to Australian school or to base school? Oh yeah, I went to Australian Catholic school because in Australia, I don't know if it's the same, but back then it was like it was like public school, which was the bad school, or Catholic school, which was the good school. And I had to wear a uniform and everything like that, which I think most people would think that that's weird and kind of oppressive that forcing you to wear a uniform. But I loved it. Why? I don't know. It was fun. It was fun dressing up before school. Like you had, we had to wear, and I was in a new country, so it was all just, it was exciting to do this. It seemed really exotic. To like wear these slacks and then wear a tie. I had to wear a tie to school. And then you had to wear these, they call them, I, what do they call them here? They're like Clarks, like Chuckas with sand shoes, they call them there. Yeah, desert boots. And I had desert boots. Yeah, and those were those were the shoes you had to wear. Nice. Had to wear cool Clark desert boots. So they basically forced, forced you to become a mod. <laughs> it was kind of like <laughs> that. It was like, had to wear like these, you know, tan like sand colored clarks and then gray trousers like a lime green button-up shirt with a green and gray tie i just thought it was the coolest thing so did you didn't ever go to catholic school here in the states no oh i, I went to catholic school the only other time i went to catholic school was in canada when i lived in toronto because i mean we got for people that don't know me. My dad was a Marine, so we got stationed all over the country and all over the world. And when we were in the states, my mom would never. I'm sure my dad wanted me to go to Catholic school because he was into that sort of discipline and all that bullshit. But my mom was. Uh, she wanted us to go wherever our friends went, which was very smart and lovely of her she didn't want us to go to a school where all of our friends who lived like on our block yeah and shit went to, we she didn't want us going to a different school than them yeah she's very grateful that she was that intelligent about that stuff um but in canada canada was the same as australia where the good school was the catholic school so we went to the we went to catholic school over there but there was nothing that was Catholic about it. No uniforms, no anything, no prayers, no anything. And the kids at that school, I've never gone to a school with more delinquents than, <laughs> than that Catholic school in Canada. It was so insane. My God, every day I had to like, it's how I got so good at like, uh, like talking my way out of trouble because mm. every day on the way home I had to talk my way out of getting the shit kicked out of me by some fucking Canadian delinquent bullies and I would just it was absolute total Jedi mind trick every single day you know what I mean like some bullies would be standing in my way and I would you know they just get in front of me like on the sidewalk or on the street and just I had nothing I could do yeah and then they would grab my bike and they would go we want your bike. And I would just off just completely out of just survival instinct. <laughs> I would just go, Oh, Hey, is your name Todd? 
And they would go, no. I go, oh, but you're friends with Todd. I rem- this is, I remember specifically doing this, having yeah. this conversation. This isn't just yeah. me like. This is a specific account. Hyper- yeah, it's not some like hyperbolic. Teach your kids this trick. It worked for Sean. So and go they, on. And they just go, what? And I go, yeah, I feel like I've seen you with them. And just making them yeah. think about something else yes. confused them enough and made them like falter in their motivation enough that they just let me go because yeah. they were like, "Oh, maybe, maybe I do know him. Maybe." I just... Yeah, you just broke the momentum. Oh yeah, and yeah. broke their brains because yeah. they were. I mean, they're fucking dumb kids too. You know what I mean? I, I've never, I never encountered a bully, a bully that was like, oh god, he was really smart. He was a real asshole, but man, he was smart. Never, it was never the case. Anyway, yeah, Canada. I went to Catholic school, um, but yeah, came back, to, <laughs> came back to San Diego, and that was that was uh, that was. I had no problem. Like people always ask me, like, oh, you moved all over the world. That must have been really hard for you as a kid. And I'm like, it wasn't. I, I don't know. I don't have any bad memories of like transitioning in any of the countries. It was super easy. I just, I think because it, it started at such a young age, it like gave me the skills to be able to sort of adapt and figure out how to like be friends with all sorts of different people, even if they were from different countries. Yeah. My mom being also, a, she was an army brat and she moved all over the world, lived in every all over the America and all over Europe. And she said that same thing. She said it was kind of like early on you learn, oh, personality is a thing we put on or you're, you know, it's just a way we present to others. And each time you moved, it's like a chance to kind of go, oh, I'll be this way at this school and I'll try this out and, and kind of come in with fully different vibe. And ironically, turns you into a little Bowie. Yeah. When I, ironically, because I had, I had lived in San Diego before. Like I lived in San Diego from kindergarten to fifth grade. And then we moved all over the place. And then I came back in ninth grade, the end of ninth grade, I think. So I had, I had, I had lived in San Diego for, uh, what is that? Six, five years, five or six years as, as a kid. And I, you know, I had all my friends and things and moving back to San Diego, I thought, oh, well, this is going to be the easiest transition going back home. And that was, it was the polar opposite of it. It's what, it's what set me just full circle for this podcast, which is, you know, there's an underlying theme of punk and how it influences you. That's what did it. Cause I came back and I was so alienated. All my, all my old friends who I had grown up with in elementary school didn't, fucking want to have anything to do with me like you were a kook i don't know what i don't know what the thing what it was i think they just were like they had moved on in their lives and they just they didn't have any they didn't have any connection to me i had a big connection to them because i was coming back to them but they were like oh yeah yeah you yeah i remember you in third grade but we're not friends now (laughs) you know what i mean like i bear i don't even know you and it was really, really, that was really, really rough and alienating because no one fucking gave a shit about being friends with me. Your credits again. did not transfer. Oh, no, not at all. And I think that's like moving to different places, especially 
different countries, I was kind of exotic because I was an American. So people were gravitated towards being in, me and being interested in me because I was just right. different in an interesting way to them, I guess. But but yeah, moving back. And that's what that feeling of alienation was intense, like in the first, you know, early years of high school when you're, I mean, and you're just coming into puberty and that's when all of your emotions are my body is changing in so many ways but that's how but that's how punk happened in my life because i was just so uh emotionally and culturally uh, and socially isolated that when you know i think we've talked about on one of the previous podcasts when the kid the one the weird kid around the corner that lived lived around the corner from me who just I'll, I, okay I'll hang out with this kid just because he's at least someone to hang out with and he had punk records and I remember putting on that black flag damage record and just going oh there I am it sound like I feel <laughs> that exactly that's how it happened so that that move back to California I don't know if it would have happened I remember I was sore I remember in Canada, Toronto was really interesting when I lived there. And I think I lived there in 1980, 1979, 1980. And they, they're like, uh, the, uh, the music culture up there and, and the radio stations were so incredible. It's like so the New York of Canada. Yeah. Like, people don't really realize, unless they've, you know, are into like, music history very specifically where things happen but at that time in the late 70s like it was like new york london los angeles and toronto like i don't think many people in america had realized toronto was a center but everyone else in the world like bands that toured and shit knew that toronto was a spot and there was just something about what was happening there culturally that made it they didn't they they felt it felt way less restricted in Canada because I remember going up and listening to the radio, turning on the radio station, and there were like three radio stations that just played. They played the Clash and the Ramones and punk and everything from ACDC. They played everything. It was the most eclectic playlists I've ever heard. I'd never heard anything before, or probably or since. will ever hear. Yeah, I don't I I don't think that can happen anymore. But it was. It was it was absolutely primary and uh, you know the development of my musical tastes. I just it was unbelievable. It was so exciting, you know, to go up there and just hear every just turn on the radio and hear everything. You know, yeah. everything was represented. It was fantastic. And these weren't college stations; these were just commercial no, just stations. Just the regular. Yeah. I remember. I can't. I can only remember one. There was like three radio stations, and they were all competing. But they were all really, really good. Like, do you remember 91X? In, oh, yeah, in San of Diego? course. Of course. Broadcasting it, they were, there out was of like, Baja, California. It was, like, it was like 91X, which was super, super progressive at that time. It in was the a trend-setting. Except it also played, these stations also played Led Zeppelin and Kiss and ACDC and yeah. you know, everything. 91X was, was like one of the early alternative commercial stations in the United States. I'm kind wondering, of like KR, it was based on KROQ, I think, and sort of I think so. in its yeah. uh, programming. I, I was wondering which came first, but I'm sure it, it was had to KRO, be KROQ. It was KRO, I imagine, yeah. 
got k-rock growing up man 91x was just right was right there it's hard it's hard to even think about like where it came from or the effect it was just so ubiquitous in san diego you know what i would like to hear is like i'd like to hear i'm sure on the internet Playlist. maybe they have like a 91x archives that you could listen to it'd be so cool to listen to 91x music from when we were well it's crazy there. it's also crazy to Depeche, think about how 90 Boingo. how culturally how 91x affected culture in san diego because it was so ubiquitous and it was so, the station for you. It was people. the station. So that's why, like, at at our high school, remember the the fucking the bullies, the dipshits. Listen to Depeche Mode. They listened to Depeche Mode because that's what was popular <laughs> on 90s. They listen. The bullies listened to the Smiths and Depeche Mode. <laughs> Those were their bands. And Oingo Boingo. And of Oingo course. Boingo. Like not Oingo bands, Boingo yeah. was like the fucking Beatles in San Diego. <laughs> which is when I tell people like in other places, Oingo Boingo right. was kind of like. Oh yeah, it was like this cool, weird art, like prog band that up to us up here, and I'm like, that was jock music in fucking San Diego, and it really was. Hundred percent because of ninety one X. Yep. Yeah, completely. It's fat. It's fascinating. Yeah, I got my ass kicked by some Wang Chung guys. <laughs> <laughs> Those fucking Wang Chungers, dude. Everybody Wang Chung tonight <laughs> on this guy's Wang face. Wang Chung on your face. A Wang Chung on your fucking nuts. <laughs> Yeah, it was fascinating. And then when you would, would and then listening to K Rock, K Rock was the K Rock was like, I mean, K Rock was kind of like ninety one X during the day, but ninety one X was just the same playlist from the from was twenty four seven. Whereas K Rock at night got like Rodney on the Rock, yeah, punk. got real punk and cutting edge. And though man, listening to that, that was just like magic. Yeah, listening. You didn't hear that shit on MTV. You did not. That you was, did not hear. Uh, yeah, that was hugely influential. Listening to K Rock at nights was, was fa- it was amazing. Anyway, where where were we? Why? How did we get on that? Anyways, nineteen eighty two. Yeah, why nineteen eighty two? I just because this is episode eighty two, so that's how we launched it. Oh. I was like eighty two. I just threw it out there, and we riffed, and it was magic, and it was gold. And very thank you very clever. much. Please very support clever. the podcast, Patreon, Drager Method. Um, so speaking of Catholic upbringing and you you were a hundred percent irish guy i'm three quarters i mean let's I'm talk sinead o'connor american yeah uh, and you know what i'm saying yeah <laughs> I, yeah you know what i'm saying though nothing bothers a real irish person more the, than yeah, an american right. that says they're a hundred percent right irish. right just like <laughs> you're not even slightly right completely different but let's talk sinead do you see my beer it's green fuck you i'm, a, I'm irish leprechauns I'm Irish. No, but um, let's talk Sinead O'Connor. It's a, uh, I, you know, it's, it's the classic um, uh, death where you, you, you don't realize how important they were until they're gone. I hate it. I hate that we all do it. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't paying attention to Sinead O'Connor, and then it made me feel bad when she was gone and but it did i will say that i mean we can get into you know how she affected us because i think she came out when we were like when i was living at your house in yeah. san diego and, like mm-hmm. i think her first record was 1989 88 89, 88, 89. Yeah. but um i will like whenever she popped up on the news and it was almost 
100% some sort of ridicule of whatever she was doing right. now yeah. or some disparaging she was kind of like take. a Bjork, you know, like Bjork so in like mainstream media, like Bjork so in, except with also a political angle to yeah. it, you know, not just like but everyone Bjork loves so crazy. Bjork. Yeah. But love. you know, she's a she's like a person that's made fun of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like she's crazy. She's She's, but they, but she crazy still is loved and respected. Sinead yeah, was right. kind of despised. It seemed like it. It's Lion and the Cobra came out uh, eighty seven. Eighty seven. Oh, yeah. we, I was definitely living. With, Big time. We were definitely living the other. In fact, I remember us listening to that record. I remember All the holding time. that record in it in your house, marveling at it. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big, it was kind of a big deal. I just, because it was, you know, we were like, what, 16, 17, something like that? And the and thing that's so fucking crazy, she was one year older I know. than us. I know, it's weird. It is that, I mean, that's another thing, like, just contemplating someone your own age dying is it's very distressing to think about your mortality, you know, just to realize like, oh, this is when people start dying people die at all ages though. i know it's true in our life at least but yeah she was like i mean at th at that point she was universally kind of recognized as being something very special everyone loved her she was like hugely popular There's but that was before nothing compares to you made her like she was still kind of yeah. a underground 91 xc yeah, yeah. type uh but mainstream underground you know major label yeah, but her. She, yeah, her, and that was that age where, like, you know, we were super into punk and stuff. But, you know, when I really look back, I go, well, we were listening to a lot of major label music, oh, like we Metallica. We just listened to anything that was quality, good or anything interesting. that was good, yeah. Yeah. you know. And that she was definitely good. She was definitely original, you know. Yeah, I mean, just when she came out with the shaved head, you know, it's not a time where there were women singers with shaved heads. I mean, I'm that, just looking like a skinhead punk, you know. I mean, just that alone, like when contemplating her value or what she was, who and what made her special, just to do something that fundamentally <laughs> harmed her like marketability, right? You know what I mean? Off and to the, insist on it, straight off you know the bat, I mean? yeah. To just go, I'm not, I'm not trading in in on this level of. Uh, selling myself like she also happened to be so just stunningly beautiful yeah. that with a shaved head no makeup jeans and a t-shirt and combat boots she was still like oh my god i'm in love oh, with yeah. her yeah she, she's the most beautiful person of all time. i know imagine imagine if she did grow out her hair at that time like how i mean oh, i mean if she wanted to play the game she would have just been yeah. you know yeah yeah the she ultimate gamer yeah it's and then, I mean, it's hard to tell. I, I think it was it was the Pope ripping up the Pope picture that which was her. Was she kind of being starting to be vilified before the Pope thing or did it all start there? I can't I can't remember. I don't have a recollection. Yeah, well, I don't think. Well, it was it was with nothing compares to you. And then which made her massive, which was just absolutely like, you know, worldwide yeah. number one hit in like every country on Earth, practically night, you know, next level breakthrough. Do you know the success. story of how uh, that song came to her from Prince? Did he he didn't write it for her, did he? No, I don't. I, mean, he I can't remember write it for the her. Story. No, she she just I don't know how she came across it. 
she like, covered did it. Did they encounter each other or was it just? Well, there's the famous story of the, their, their meeting afterwards mm. where she says he basically attacked her what? physically. I don't remember this. She said, yeah, well, she talks about what it in interviews where she, she always sort of doesn't, uh, she doesn't talk about it directly, but she'll talk about like that she doesn't want to talk about it. And what happened? Why do, I don't know why I don't remember this. She just says it was an absolutely terrifying thing, and he like what? physically, almost physically assaulted her at some point. Is or did physically any, assault her. Is there any theories as to why that happened? We would have to dig into it. I mean, I'm sure. Probably had something to do with royalties or something. Some I mean, Prince business. was a, uh, you know, another one of those total genius maniacs kind yeah. of, you know. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just listened to an interview or read an interview with uh, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top about the time. I mean, he, Billy F. Gibbons. Billy F. Gibbons, the Reverend Willie Billy F. Gibbons. Um, when did he start having a middle initial? <laughs> I don't know. It's That's just, like a recent thing because I've seen that before. Like Billy F. Gibbons. I'm like, oh, you mean Billy from ZZ Top? I don't. I, I didn't. I. I'm a very, very big ZZ Top fan. Love them so much. So I, at least the early stuff i don't you know don't care about anything post like 1978 but <laughs> um but that but pre-78 is i mean oh god i just it's I, it's weird how much i'm fascinated with it but anyway never Have never heard, heard Billy Sombres. I, the insane too many times probably it's like a refried beans landing on your head <laughs> I have Lucy and I share, uh, you know, the Spotify and it's she registered it in her name. And you know how at the end of the year it, it has the metrics for this. This is what you listen to the most. Yeah. And Lucy showed it to me and she goes, huh, wonder who's been listening to my to my Spotify <laughs> account and just number one. And they they make the print super like a pie chart the text super yeah. large for what you've been listening to. <laughs> number one for the year was just ZZ Top, <laughs> who Lucy couldn't give two shits about. Yeah. Anyway. But yeah, and I, I heard an interview, Billy F. Gibbons, about him meeting Prince, which was funny. Has nothing to do with Sinead, but anyway. So what, what? Sinead. What was that story? <laughs> just how like Billy Gibbons was talking about being uh, had just played a show, which he which he calls a. And in, every time Billy Gibbons uh, describes himself playing a show, he talks about he describes it as an engagement, um, which is funny. And like it, he has such a funny way of talking, you'd never think, but he's he's very articulate and very well spoken. And speaks in flourishes, like very articulate, articulate flourishes, which you wouldn't imagine. Like he's super, it's super, super smart. It's really, it's uh, maybe counterintuitive, but it's fascinating. But isn't he like a total, because he's raised by like super intellectuals and he I came from a very so, yeah. wealthy background. I don't know if he was wealthy. Pretty sure. Hmm. I know he's from, he was from Houston. I don't know if he was wealthy or not, but certainly doesn't talk about himself that way but he went so anyways he played an engagement in new york and then uh said he was down he had he had a restaurant down in the meatpacking district he used to go to after shows but it was closed so he just happened to end up at like a place with some naked ladies dancing on the tables and stuff and he, he's like well it's the only place that's open so i guess i'll go in and he went in and 
some large bodyguard man uh, came and said, um, someone would uh, like to talk to you. And he's like, who's someone? And he goes, this gentleman over here. And it was Prince just who, who had his own booth, you know, with a wall of security. And he saw Billy Gibbons and just pulled Billy Gibbons over. And Billy Gibbons was like, what? What is this? What? What is going to happen here? <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> and they sat down. He said, Prince just talked to him for like four hours until like five o'clock in the morning just about guitars. He just wanted to want to talk to him about guitars, guitar yeah. playing, techniques, yeah. all of his favorite guitars. And it was, and Billy Gibbons was like, I had no idea that he goes because obviously he was just like i knew he you know he's a legend he's a genius but he goes i did not i had no idea that he was also a genius guitar player which he i mean we all know now because we've seen him play but at that time he's just like i didn't even know he played guitar and he's the best guitar player of of all time like billy gibbons played with hendrix or jammed with him at least oh yeah billy yeah that's kind of what in a lot of ways put Billy Gibbons on the map because he was in moving sidewalks who were, you know, they were local, they, you know, they're a local kind of Rocky Arrets in influenced psychedelic Texas band in the late sixties. Yeah. And he, they got, they opened for Jimi Hendrix when he came to Houston and they just happened, you know, after the show, they just happened to be hanging out and talking and, uh, played music together, you know, just in the hotel room or whatever. And then Hendrix was famously interviewed in like, you know, sometime around then. And he was, he was asked like, Oh, what guitar players are you listening to? Do you like anybody? Who do, who do you think is good? Right. And, he, and he just, and he said, Oh, there's this cat in Houston named Billy Gibbons. Who just is. And the interviewer uh, goes, you mean Billy F. Gibbons? Billy F. Gibbons. You mean the Reverend Willie? <laughs> um, yeah, and then and that kind of put Billy Gibbons on the map. Yeah, because pretty, it was in Rolling Stone. It's or pretty nice like to have Hendrix say, oh my, God, "My favorite you guitarist." That? Is... <laughs> Jimmy, <laughs> well, Jimmy Hendrix said I was good, so I might be. <laughs> so Billy Gibbons' dad was an orchestra leader, a band uh, leader, and interesting. And his he had some association with Met, MGM Studios, and it's like it's not really an intellectual per se or. I was, t- I was talking out my ass. I don't know. His yeah. de- but it comes from new? a musical family. What is new? Billy Gibbons' first guitar, Gibson Melody Maker, and a Fender Champ amp. Yep. I knew pretty, that. Pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, so, do you want to talk more about Sinead? Yeah. I just, it's, it's just terrible, man. It's, it's really terrible. Just, she, she never talked about, you know, all the abuse and ridicule, ridicule she took, um, as doing anything but making her stronger and like what was she, what was her quote i was reading that like everyone thinks my career was ruined by ripping up the picture of the pope and she's like it didn't didn't ruin my career at all they only think that because they think your career is is ruined if you're not a mega star she goes i didn't need to be a mega star she she, goes, well yeah she said she was like no th- it made my career yeah because I didn't want to be a pop star. I exactly. wanted to be a rebel, yeah. you know, and that's what I did. So yeah. that's actually. Yeah. And she goes, I played shows. People always came to my shows, you know, put out records, did her thing. Yeah. But it's still, there's no way that, I mean, I don't know what level of, you know, psychological trauma or imbalance she had, obviously. 
you know, but it seemed like, or how much that experience damaged her, but I can only imagine it was a lot. I mean, how could it not be like just to be universally despised at least not universal. It's not even though. true. It's, it's never though. universal. No, I mean, but the, everyone just... always says that because the me, if the media does it, that right. means oh, that's what the the entire world thinks. But me and all my friends, everyone that I knew, thought she was the fucking best. Yeah. Always, yeah. never didn't think she was the best. You right. know what I mean, never changed. You know, it's even like even in that that footage of her being booed off the stage at Quote the unquote, Bob Dylan yeah. thing. If you watch the crowd. And oh, when, yeah. If you like, listen, there's people cheering like crazy. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. And it's kind of like, it kind of, it sort of exacerbated the negativity because it really does, when you look at the crowd, when the camera pans out, there are thousands and thousands of people clapping. Of course. But which what it does, though, it exacerbated the booing because then it made the people Boo that are booing, boo louder, and then the people that are clapping clap louder, and then it sounds just like this really disruptive Din. thing where the audience has ruined the performance. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's that's the way I took it. Like I, t it looked to me like the crowd was split. Yeah, you know what I mean. Well, th I believe it was that year she was voted best artist yeah. and worst artist in the Rolling Stones <laughs> poll, Rolling Stone poll, and uh, she in an interview that I watched recently. She said, and, and you know, what better thing could you possibly get than both those awards at the same time? She goes, and that means you're doing something exactly. that matters. And it's also, it's, it's really illustrative of how people think when people talk about, you know, uh, what's happening in America now is like, America has never been so divided. And I'm like, it's never not been divided. It's always been divided. Never has it not been divided. If you go back in history, like you wouldn't even believe if you read history about there was a thing called the Civil War. Oh my God, exactly. And even like, like the birth of the nation post the revolution, everyone thinks like, oh, we won the Revolutionary War. Everyone must have been so together and built this country. It was the ugliest politics you can imagine that make this all look like really kind of trite. Really, the politics of like the late 18th century and all through the 19th century, it's like this is kids' play compared to what they did then. Just Well, I think in general, so I mean, insane. Americans are known for having a very, very short historical memory. You know, like it's like a 10-year <laughs> memory typically, like something like that. It's the so, cause of everything. You know what I mean? Like what is, what's this, what's the saying? You know, if, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. I mean, that's, there's no truer idiom. Anyway. Yeah, well, Sinead, I mean, for me, it's, uh, you know, I, I've, I've had a thing with her in the past, you know, 20 years or something where I rediscover her like every five years or something. Mm. I'll do that. It's almost like I forget. I was like, oh, yeah, Sinead O'Connor. Sort of like I do with Kate Bush. Like, yeah. She's who I believe was one of uh, Sinead O'Connor's original main influences. Makes perfect that track. I'd imagine. Say. Yeah. Yeah, I think she, I, I read something where she showed up to like one of her first recording studio you know, things with it, some Kate Bush stuff. And she was like, that's what got me into music, whatever the case. I also, I've also heard her talk about that she sees Bob Dylan's Slow Train Coming album as her father. She's like, she's like, didn't really have a dad. Her dad was mm. uh, 
her mom wouldn't let her see her dad. And she said right. something about that album. She saw it as her father. Interesting. Which I'm like, got to go back and re-listen to that album. Yeah, seriously. Go deep on that. Anyways, she... Um, yeah, so like sort of like with Kate Bush, where I will rediscover and just marvel every five years in my life, I will revisit it and kind of see it in a new light, uh, the catalog, you know? And with Sinead O'Connor, yeah, I haven't kept up with all her more recent albums, um, but it's always strikes me as like, oh yeah, that was a major thing for me, like in that that at that time, like in my in my youth, like yeah. her when she appeared on the scene, and she definitely how much changed. those songs she changed meant everything. to me. Like, yeah. I remember, and I even think like you know, starting out in music, like I was always like, I'm a solo guy, I'm, and a big part of that was her and Billy Bragg were like the two yeah. people that I was like, just the solo person singing their truth you know it was kind of what i aspired to and she was a huge part of that huge part of it it's terrifying it's it must be terrifying to be like that to just it just be you you know what i mean i mean to me like, i found it terrifying i couldn't really follow through on it it's i can't even imagine i couldn't i never even wanted to because i could sense like how terrifying i was not built for it man that's why like i just i just want to be in a band so there's five of us <laughs> You're like, a bass player. No one's no one's focusing on me. You know what I mean? It's but I can still do it. But there's there's a bunch of us. You know what I mean? But to be just and also to be just a, the not only everyone staring at you, but also to be a voice. You know what I mean? It's, and so for Sinead O'Connor, I mean, I can't even imagine. Twenty-two it, years old, twenty years old, a woman, pretty, small. You know, like from another country. It's like it's kind of like you know when you think of this culture. I mean, granted, this is all pre-internet where, you know, you're not going to get attacked in that way. But, I mean, any woman that's in public is is like a hero. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Green. Just kidding. But, um, you know, <laughs> no, but anyone who's like in public, you know, putting out something that like is especially counter to the prevailing winds and not just trying to go along and be a commercial entity. It's like absolute hero's journey. Yeah, and, she, and she wouldn't have... She also... She wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't even have known about her if it weren't for you two. Because you two just basically took her, found, like, I think The Edge found her, like, saw her busking or something like that. Was oh, that and right? I think so, yeah. I think he literally saw her singing on the street and went, You're a genius. And that's how that happened. Because if at that time, especially, like, I mean, it was so like, just looking back and just looking how sexist just popular culture in general was. You know what I mean? You Like just looking at the movies everyone loved in the 80s. Now you look back and you're just like, cringe. <laughs> like, yeah, more than so cringe. cringe. I just don't think she could have happened unless there was someone that, so powerful that the industry just couldn't say no. Yeah. Know? Which yeah. is terrible, but at least it happened and it really did it really did change everything. Like it says here she was in the band called Tantan Makut. Oh yeah. Who yeah. came to the attention of the music industry and got she got her signed. It doesn't mention the edge. Really? She, I know it I says here read... she co wrote a song with the edge okay. soon after that. Because I thought he I thought I read somewhere that he 
maybe it's just apocryphal or the, it's the, the manager thing... the manager was the her first manager was the manager of u2's original label okay. mother records so there's a U2 thing in there. Definitely like U2's manager became her manager. Uh-huh. I, I knew there was some connection. I just remember reading something about the edge, like taking her under his wing. And she, one of her first things was writing a soundtrack to the film captive with the edge. Uh, okay. So it's basically like, yeah, you got, um, didn't hurt. Yeah. Yep. O'Connor adopted the same habits. She defended the actions of the provisional IRA and said that U2's music was bombastic. (laughs) 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 I mean, the other thing, going back to also grief, um, you know, when you were talking about that movie, Talk to Me, how I I think you saw it. You can tell me if I'm wrong or, or not. But what I read was that the underlying theme was like this manifestation of of grief. I mean, from everything I've read, like heard like the, and speaking as, as now, now I am a parent. Like I can't even imagine like, cause her son committed suicide last right. year. And you know, there are a lot of theories that the, I don't know what, how ha- I, I haven't read any definitive um, account of how she died. I'm, I don't think it's it's been made public. I was just assuming that it was self-inflicted. I could be I could be wrong. I could totally be wrong, but it seems like people who are close to it have inferred that that's the case. I don't know. But either way, like thinking about if that were the case, her and a lot of people have talked about it ha- it being directly related to her son committing suicide last sure. year. And it made me think about um, uh, you know, now that I'm a parent and if something happened to my child, I'd, I'd, it, it's very, very distressing to even let your mind go there. But I did just to think, well, what would, what would I, what would, what would my brain do? What, if, if I imagine that, what would I do? And I, and as soon as I imagined it about five seconds into imagining it, I'd be like, oh, I couldn't, I can't even imagine living. I couldn't imagine living if something happened to her at this point. I couldn't imagine it. So the, I immediately like went, well, I, I get it. Grief, the, and grief is very, 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 very powerful. You know, that, that type of grief, like losing your child. And just imagine what it must have been like, like before modern medicine. Like I was just, I was showing Ren, my daughter, we were watching the Jungle Book, you know, Disney's Jungle Book. And it got me interested. I'm like, because at the beginning it says, you know, based on Rudyard Kipling's book. And, you know, we all think about Kipling as being this like imperialist apologist now, you know, but yet there are all these classic works that uh, are based on his, on his writings. And I realized I'd never read it because, you know, I grew up in a world where it's like, He's a fucking imperialist. Who cares? You know Canceled. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> imperialist asshole. And it made me go, well, what is, what is actually his deal? I haven't really read anything about him. And I was reading about him. And while all of these things are, you know, sort of true, it's very complicated as, as far as I don't want to get into Kipling, but he, his, uh, they recently, a, his his original copy of the jungle book was found in some archive in england 
and in the cover within on the on the title page it was written like for my daughter Josephine for whom this was written by her father and I was like oh that's really sweet he wrote the book for his daughter and then I kept reading about it oh and his daughter like a year later died of tuberculosis and then I just thought about and again now I thought about it what he it like losing a child like I can't even imagine it and thinking about when before modern medicine when child mortality rates were like 50 percent of children died you know you're constantly can you imagine that like those generations of humans that lost their children just was losing your child to was normal like oh my god man right (laughs) can you even imagine what life must have been like emotionally i just oh and just death is such a part of life just all everybody dying left and right influenzas and little bacterial things peewee polio peewee peewee now too i didn't realize like another peewee was another one peewee visionary uh, paul rubens i mean that character i mean an absolute and utter genius he's like he's i don't know if he's taken it's taken for granted now i mean it's so like just part of popular culture he's like the Simpsons, Pee Wee yeah. Herman, you know, yeah. you, they're just part of American, like, comedic psyche, you know. But when, again, we were in high school when he showed up, and that was so, so radical when Pee Wee's Playhouse happened. You know, happened. it's punkish, it's, it's very punk adjacent. Gary Panter, you know, who yeah. was LA yeah, yeah, punk yeah, yeah. artist, was yeah. like his you know, the main visual guy behind the playhouse. Yeah, Yeah, he was connected to that. He was in the groundlings and connected to the whole punk scene. But that, I still don't, I don't even, when I look back, I go, how did that, how did that get made? Like, who was responsible for going, oh yeah, Pee-wee's Playhouse, which was his kind of like naughty take of a children's show in the groundlings. Yeah. Like, who went... Oh, let's let's make this a mainstream. Yeah, take the sexual stuff out of it, and but it's but when you watch it, yeah. it's still in there. Oh, it's in there. And we knew it as teenagers. I remember. I mean, it changed everything. Like there, he's like that is so definitive. Like when I I remember those times. Like what did we think was funny? I I feel like the things that we thought were funny in the mid eighties were all things from the seventies. Like like what we thought was. Like our touchstones for comedy, I feel like were Monty Python, Andrew Dice Clay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, Monty Python, and like Steve Martin and Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy. Mad Those, Magazine was the yeah. prior to that. But then Pee Wee, when I I was thinking about it today, and I don't know if I ever thought about it, like then Pee Wee came along, and I feel like Pee Wee was the first like comedic entity where I went oh, that's ours. That's us. Like, this is the first, like, it was so absurd and, like, borrowed from, from like, all the different generations. It's very 50s, like, parodying fi- like the 50s, 60s. Like all the punk 60s. new wavy exactly. stuff had that 50s, 60s, B-52s-ish, you know. Yeah, and it of. was so absurd and kind of surreal and sarcastic 
and very subversive. Queerish, yeah. you know, because he was queer, totally. you know, and it's like. Yeah, and I, th- I feel like he was, our fir- he was our first real uh, representation of, I think, our generation. Like, Yeah, it's a very Gen X. Um, yeah. It's that generation of, it's like the older punk generation thing, you know, yeah. like you go the 77 punks slash magazine yeah. people. Like like that generation stepped into a commercial uh, area. Yeah, I mean, commercial I just, space. I think, and he changed. He changed everything too. You don't realize it, but comedy was different after him. What year did The Simpsons come out? Was that like concurrent or just think, after that? Eighty nine. I mean, unless you count because The Simpsons first showed up in Tracy Ullman's right right show as mm-hmm. like these just yeah, little, little interstitial. Thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm things but i think that was in the that was in the mid late 80s and I, but i think the simpsons were i think it was 89 that the series started which is just so fucking crazy it's still going longest running show ever i think it says 60 it's minutes still going i haven't watched it in... peewee's playhouse started on in the eight in 86 oh yeah so ran right around the time just before shane o'connor came out yeah yeah so 86 and then first Simpsons episode. And we watched it because it, it was a destination TV thing. Watch in, in the morning, yeah, yeah. We, used, I, we used to wake up yeah. in the morning to watch it and smoke weed. <laughs> watch Pee-wee <laughs> at Pee-wee. 9 a.m. or whenever it came up. Yeah, because like back then. Destination... Can we pause for one second? I, I just got a whiz. Oh, yeah. Hang on a sec. You're in break. And pull yourself up a chair. Hey, Jerry! Put the plastic in, it's time to let down your hair. TV's too on its side, so it's been left in and bright. The wacky TV playhouse. It's a crazy rhythm. How was that? Sweet, sweet relief. It's a good thing, man. Thank God for the ureter. <laughs> Have you ever had a kidney stone? Yes, I had a kidney stone once. Oh my God! I mine mine was lodged in my ureter. That's why oh, I know that word. I know. That's how I know it. Because like you, you've had one, and I think I think now that you've said ureter, I now I'm putting it together that I've heard from you, and then. Our friend CJ had one very recently that knocked him off his bike into the gutter while he was riding his bike home from feeding my cats. (laughs) Knocked him off his bike, laying in the gutter, thinking that he was going to die in the gutter on interstate. (laughs) Not a nice street to die in the gutter. No, no gutter. Do you really want to die in? Oh my God. I don't want one. I just, it's, I don't, oh man. Unlike most people, so you terrible. don't want you don't want a kidney stone. No, they're horrifying. I mean, I'm so glad I only had that one. It was awful. Like, what is this? What does it feel like? You're gonna die? Well, I passed out. You know, it's like it actually gave me kind well, of a it gave me a certain you're kind of real soft certain kind of peace because um, this was a long time ago, like in the '90s in Olympia, and yeah, oh, you had it when you were young. Yeah. Oh wow. I don't think they're really age. Maybe they're age. What is it? Like it's a buildup of build cal- in my in my case, in your... it was a buildup of oxalic acid. I think they they said in what organ? Your kidney? I don't know the mechanics of it. Yeah, I mean it, it's your it's a sploink? It's in your my sploink? it's in my sploink. 
which is connected to the kidney. No, the um, the kidney is like a sponge. This is what I understand. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a doctor. Don't take any medical advice from me, but but or, or wisdom or understanding or knowledge. But uh, I believe it's like the kidney is a sponge type thing. It's not a you know. You've done your own research. I trust you. It's not, I've done my own. And uh, so the kidney stone forms in there like a pebble or a horny, like it like, can be kind of a, there's ones that are called like staghorn kidney stones that sound just like what you, you're thinking of. They're like covered in little barbs. And there's ones that are kind of more smooth, like an apple seed. And they're in the kidney and then they move through that tissue, through the sponge towards like the tube or something. And that's when the pain is because oh, you're feeling it God. great through the, that sponge. This is what I understand. And then it gets to the tubes and then you, the, what you want to have happen is it to move through the tubes, like the ureter and then down through your urethra and splink out in the case of a man, which I think most kidney stones occur for men as far as I, I understand. Know. But then it goes out your ureter, your hole, um, goes out the, the urethra and then you're done. And if it gets lodged somewhere, it has to be broken up with like a sonic bath. You sit in a bath and they blast it with oh, like yeah, vibrations until it that. kind of it can breaks it apart somehow. Anyways, to pass it or something. So yeah, for mine. The, no, thank you. The pain was that time when it's moving through the kidney and it's like absolutely, you know, just like getting a sword shoved through through shit, the side man. of your your uh, your side. And I I do remember. I was in at the food co-op, the West Side Food Co-op in Olympia, uh, volunteering, doing inventory or something, and it started happening. And I felt the pain and just got worse and worse until it was like, oh my god, I'm like sweating, pale as a ghost, going, what the fuck, I'm dying. And somebody said, jump, do a little hop, like hop up and down, and if it's a, <laughs> if it's your appendix about to burst, uh, it'll be excruciating to hop, uh -huh. you know. And then it's like, you might die, you know? And if, if you hop and it's, and it doesn't change the pain, then it's probably something else like a kidney stone. And I hopped and it didn't change the pain. It was horrifying, but didn't get worse, you know? So then they were like, it's probably a kidney stone. That's some high, that's some high tech diagnosis. But it's, it's smart. It's good to <laughs> yeah, know yeah, because yeah, it, cause an yeah. appendix bursting can mean death, you know? So do you know whereas, any, do you know anyone that's uh, had their appendix removed? Yes. Isn't it weird you hear about it? Everyone's like, ah, appendix removed. Yeah. That's a thing. I I don't think I, I'm not conscious that I know anyone that's had their appendix removed. I can't recall off the top of my head, but I do remember talking with people mm. about it. Yeah. And the whole thing of it bursting and stuff. Uh, yeah. It's horrifying that that can just happen. Awful. But anyways, so yeah, so I got in the car and they were driving me to St. Pete's Hospital in Olympia. And on the way there, I, I was in such a, in such pain that I began almost hallucinating. Like I was convinced that I recalled eating an apple that had a puncture mark in it. And I was like, somebody poisoned that apple that I had eaten. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And I was like, somebody injected that apple with poison. And it was like a witch or somebody, or somebody did that. And I was like saying that. Makes and sense. then I just, I was in such pain that I, I just got to this it's place where I passed out. And it actually made me feel good later to think like, okay, there's nothing really to fear because if pain gets too great, you pass out and you're gone and you're not dead, but you're gone. Like the body won't let you be, 
there's there's like things that the body does to shut off pain at certain points. I think it's really funny. We were I was just having this conversation with Lucy, my wife, who is also an ICU nurse, and she, you know, she always comes home with stories about her patients, and you know, she sees people die all the time, and it's horrible. And we just got talking about this this. Recently, she had a patient who was, you know, he was delirious with pain. I can't remember what was happening with him, but he just wanted to die. And it was because he was in so much pain and he genuinely wanted to die. And his family was just like, don't let him die. And then the pain subsided and then he was fine and then he was discharged. But he genuinely wanted to die from the pain and he was making that choice, which made me think about how like our brain like everything about our conscious mind resists the idea of death or most I'm assuming most people do not want to die fear death don't want to do it either fear it or are not looking forward to it or it's not what every it's not what everyone's looking forward to most people want to keep the party (laughs) going but and then it made me realize because I was thinking about it. I'm like, ah, oh, that's so crazy. And then I real then I remembered when I was in Thailand, like I don't know, five or six years ago, and I got whatever the Major poisoning, bug. the whatever the poisoning is you get from drinking the water or eating food what that Westerners aren't used to, and I was so sick, like, like really sick. To the point where the whole point being, like, I was so sick. I remember at one point laying on the floor in such utter physical and mental agony that I remember very specifically going, oh, I'm fine if I I was like, Either oh, way. my God, am I going to die? And then I remember the a moment thinking, like, I'm fine with that. And it overtook everything it 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 overrode like my emotions of how this would affect lucy having to deal with my death in thailand yeah or or no we were in cambodia not thailand um and and how it affected everyone that i love and that loves me and blah 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 none of that mattered the immediate suffering would be over yeah, yeah pain pain is like the cure for fear of death. Yeah. You were, I remember feeling like it's totally fine if I die. Like I'm fine with it. Yeah. And it, I remember it very, very vividly. It wasn't just my, like an exaggeration of my psyche. Like I remember specifically going, I'm fine with it. I'm fine if I die. And that was just fucking food poisoning. And I was ready to die. People die from (laughs) food poisoning when you're shitting yourself like that. I did think I was going to die. It was that bad. It was extraordinary. How many people in human history have died from diarrhea? Millions and millions and millions. Yeah. I mean, you just... But that's it. And that's the same thing with like suicidality and stuff. Is that a word? Suicide? (laughs) Suicide. Let's just say that. With suicide. Um, Yeah. Where, you know, I don't hold it against anyone who does that. Like... You know, that whole idea, like, you're weak. It's, it's no. the, the coward's way out. It's like, dude, if somebody commits suicide, 
what kind of pain were they in exactly. that they, that inspired them to do that? It's like that's a pain that obviously Every, when is, people go, oh, it's it's such a selfish act. Fuck you, man. No, no one's thinking. Nobody can judge selfishly. They're going. They're going through. Saying, such, I want it to be over. Yeah, such anguish or such profound psychological dysfunction that it overrides all of the the instincts to stay alive that humans right. are just innately yeah. born with. It's such fucking shit i remember it's funny i remember one time when i remember reading an article with henry rollins and he i think he was writing about suicide i don't know if it's because someone died and he was asked to comment on it but he had very that classic like it's a fucking coward's way out it's totally selfish yada 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 and i love henry rollins i got nothing bad to say about him but it really upset but me. Full of fucking shit. I, I it got me so upset. I never write. I never write. I never write letters to the editor or anything. But I was so wound up about it. I'm like, fuck. That's such fucking horseshit, man. I remember, and I wrote him. I wrote a comment. I think it was in the LA Weekly, and I submitted it because I was so upset. He ended up printing a retraction and saying, like, you know. I got so many <laughs> comments yeah. schooling my ass on this that I have to say it made me reconsider. And he, and he said, because he he famously uh, has written about like one of his old friends was Joe Cole who got murdered. Yeah, in front of him. Yeah, but he, but he there's I thought Joe Cole committed suicide, but mm -mm. okay. That was the uh, you know the the shooting where he got oh, yeah, 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 yeah. at the house in Venice. I'm thinking about some other uh, one person in his life that he wrote about the suicide, and I, he because he mentions it and he says, you know, I've had close friends do it, and I like, I've it's like I've let my anger define how I feel rather than contemplate, you know, what was psycholo psychologically the the level of suffering or dysfunction that was happening psychologically yeah i never like it's not like people commit suicide i'm like yeah man right on you took you took matters into your own hand i do not feel that way obviously but i also like if someone does it i do not i pass to pass judgment on someone who is in that much like psychological pain yeah, like it's not for you no, to no no you're you're fine like it's horrible. It's terrible to consider that people do. I mean, I've you know, my sister did it. You know, I don't. I do not think of her as a fucking coward. <laughs> like I think of, I feel relief for her. You know, it was she. She had a, it was terrible. What what year brain, was that? 2015, 16, 2016. <clears throat> You know, it just goes back again, back to grief because she was, you know, she had a terrible, you know, she was afflicted yeah, horribly psychologically. And then my dad died in 2015 and that exacerbated everything with her because he, she really relied on him. And that, that grief nail, nail was the nail in her, her, her mental coffin. It was terrible. Anyway. Yeah. You know, I mean, this obviously relates to everything we were talking about with Sinead. Yeah, and right. Her yeah. Son. And it's just like, yeah, you, sometimes you can get through it, sometimes you can't. But it's certainly not something that you have any judgment about. It also made me realize I've never, I've never experienced 
that level of grief. You know, I'm, I just haven't. I like I, all the deaths in my that have occurred in my life never inspired that level of grief. Even, even my mom, like when my mom died, she you know she had cancer for so long that by the time she died, it was a relief. You know, and my sister too. She suffered so much that it was a relief. And then other friends that have died. You know, it, it just it's always been tragic, but it's never inspired that grief. And I don't, I wonder if, I just don't know. I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot because I haven't experienced it. But when I imagine, again, my child, oh God, yeah, I mean, why am I even talking about it? Even, Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, because that is the ultimate one that, that I think when you yeah. think about in the pantheon of like potential tragedies in life, you know, death of children, it's like, mm. yeah, because it's, you know, we have that belief about life that it doesn't go in that order. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And that level of just animal, you're, we're monkeys, you know, our offspring. Uh, the things, connection. Things go con off in your brain when you look into your babies. Yeah. I don't have kids, but I, you know, can imagine looking in your kids' I eyes for the first time. I could have never imagined before I had one. I, I, you, you know, know, I imagine. You will never it, understand, no, Jason. But it's true. You you can only you're imagine. You're a child. Okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm nothing. I can't. Why am I, I talking to you? I cannot know grief. Why am I even talking to you? There is this? no you potential no grief no in your clue. life. You're not actually a person. <laughs> you're, you're you're not in the game of actual emotions, Jason. You need Fucking you know what you need to do. You need to nothing shit can this podcast because you have no right to speak about to speak anything, of any anything. human condition. <laughs> you have not released progeny into the world. You, you know that's not what I'm saying. I'm what I'm saying is like joking. I didn't I didn't know because right. you, if you don't have a kid, you just don't. You don't know what that feeling is. You, it only happens there. I didn't know it existed until it happened. And I'm like, oh, God. It's almost it's almost uh, oppressive because it's all of a sudden now there's this worry. Yeah, you know? yeah, totally. It's always there. You're always worried. Like many, many parents I talk to, like it, conversations very often will go to that subject like, about how much of your psyche is consumed with keeping, keeping them that alive. person alive. Yeah. yeah. It's really yeah. It's, it's well, very it's the intense. Flipping biological imperative, right? Yeah. You know, exactly. Live long enough to have kids and then you can die. <laughs> the octopus teacher. Have you seen that movie, The Octopus Teacher? My Octopus Teacher? I have not. And do you know why I haven't? Because you have a child. <laughs> <laughs> and because I heard it was so emotionally devastating, I'm like, you can't tell me that. I don't want to go there now. Now I don't. I want to see the movie. But oh no, like, it's not. It's, I, just, I mean, it's just it's beautiful. I know, but it's I not. just man, I like I. I admit, I do. If I hear something's too psychologically devastating, I will avoid it because I feel just too on edge. I get, <laughs> I get that. <laughs> I was looking at uh, reviews of Twenty Days in Mariupol. Mm -hmm. the new documentary yeah. about the beginning of the Ukraine war. And that was mm -hmm. one of those ones where they're like, this is the most unflinching look at reality in war. Wartime reality. With modern, you know, video and just you're there watching the absolute horror in real time, the pointlessness, the, you know, and I was going, oh my God, I have to watch it, but I, I need to gird myself, you know, and, but yeah, I mean, looking into the abyss. <laughs> I, it, you, it just some, something about what we were just Hi, talking abyss. about led me to a thought about, oh, I know what it was. 
my octopus teacher, octopuses, aliens, uh-huh. aliens among us, these alien revelations that are coming out every mm-hmm. day, these uh, press conferences that have happened, these last couple ones where they're Pretty just fascinating. like <laughs> government people just going, aliens are real. We have the technology. We see them all the time. They're constantly being seen. And how, you know, the whole world just shrugs and you see all these memes that are like, yeah, but rent is seventeen hundred dollars for a studio. So why yeah. do I care about aliens? I mean, the, isn't that isn't that crazy? Is like overheating. Why do we care? Like it's arguably if if there is extra if it is found to be true that there's extraterrestrial beings that have been visiting the planet, what historical event has happened that could possibly even compare to that revelation? And People have been so conditioned <laughs> and desensitized that everyone's just kind of like, yeah, well, yeah, whatever. If it doesn't make sense, your, if it doesn't affect your life, <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And it, how's it gonna? Does it? Oh, oh. So there's aliens. Does this mean that I don't have to pay rent? Right. No. No. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I don't have to pay taxes. No. Yeah. Are so, people gonna be it's more? Very, it's very, very, very surreal. Treat each other better. No. It's very. Somebody I saw some some was it, maybe it was Martin Sprouse who was like, or maybe it was a meme that he was quoting. I can't remember if I'm crediting him correctly, but it was basically like, what if aliens are just billionaires in their little sub coming to visit us? Like they paid, you know. Billions right. of dollars to be like, I'm going to get inside my little silver sphere and go check out this. Uh, and every uh, once in a while, one of them implodes yeah. over Roswell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they're just asshole billionaires who are just like, I'm so bored. I need to go visit like that human world and check them out for a minute. I do find it. I do find it fascinating too, because like I've always, I have always been fascinated with UFOs. And but I, I think I, I come from a, a skeptical point of view. Like I don't believe. In them, and I don't not believe in them. I just, but there is such an overwhelming amount of evidence that something is being hidden. You know what I mean? By and it's not just it's not fringe shit. That's why it's like in they're talking about in Congress now and being reported in the New York Times because it is not fringe. Like something is happening, whatever the fuck it is. But the way that I feel about it is like either way. Even if it's not true, or if it's not aliens, it still is so insane because it either it's one of two things. It's either that there there really is the extraterrestrial beings or interdimensional beings or whatever visiting, interacting with this with our world. Yeah, and if it's not, then why is it being reported on? Why? Is the why is there it then it, or it's a psyop, you know? You one yeah, of the two yeah. things, it's either true or it's a psyop because you have like people in government admitting it, so it's again, it's either true or it's a psyop, which and either way, it's fucking crazy, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, totally it's, it's just a, I mean, the phenomena itself exists. You know what I mean? Like the reporting of these events, the seeing of these of these things. Why do you that think is a people, thing that exists. Why do you think people don't care? Is it just because it's we? Uh, I think it was like what, we just, it been, was what, we, what we just said. Yeah, it doesn't affect my life. Yeah, what does it matter? Yeah, and you it's know? and with technology and and like the prevalence of uh, you know sci-fi is such a big part of our culture that oh, like yeah. the idea just examining aliens and. 
there's such such a part of popular culture that I think, and people have a better understanding of the universe now that it it's sort of it's makes sense. Sure. Oh, it's a lot of factors. Yeah. I mean, it's, Why not? it's like, I mean, well, there's a lot of factors. I mean, the fact that yes, we live in a time where there's CGI, widespread use yeah. of psychedelics. There's uh, artificial intelligence being born, you know, coming into a different level of engagement. You know, throw aliens in there. It's just another thing. Yeah. You know, you go, okay, yeah. I mean, also like define alien. That's what I, that's what I was getting sort to with with the with the uh, my yeah, what, my octopus teacher. It? It's like we act like we know what octopuses are. Yeah. We act like we know what a dog's intelligence is. You know, we act like we know what our intelligence is. We don't know what any of these things are. I mean, it's often occurred to me. I remember on a mushroom trip once having this this string of words that was like the spaceships have already landed. You know, you are the are the alien. Like this faculty with language is an alien invasion of a monkey. You know, like yeah. like we were invaded millennia ago by an alien thing that's out of. But then you go like. What is nature? I mean, aliens, if they're in phenomena, if it's a thing that shows up, that's part of nature, too. Well, it's like even on the Just planet, like, like the bottom of the of ocean, nature. they don't even know no. half of what's at the bottom of the ocean. How is that any different than not knowing about what's on another planet? It's, right. the, it's, it's just the something you, you don't know unknown. about. And it's like, if you yeah. want to start listing the yeah. things I don't know about, it's like, <laughs> right. it's almost infinite. You know yeah. what I mean? So you go, so, so it's like, it's all alien to me. I mean, and also from a personal standpoint, you know, I've done ayahuasca, you know, seeing a silver orb flying through the air is not that interesting, you know, (laughs) or even like a spaceship landing and people walking out of it. It's like, it's not going to be anywhere near as strange and otherworldly as the peak ayahuasca experience. I I feel like it'd be pretty strange, (laughs) but but again, let's put it in a hierarchy. It's like, it's not as weird as that. And I mean, so that's another form of alien invasion, but again, what is alien? What is not alien? Are we, you know, we look at ourselves. I was thinking about, you know, how the human race, like every, like many people, I I think about climate change a lot and I consider, you know, human evolution and climate change and, and just like what people are doing right now on the planet. I was just thinking about this just this morning, the idea that, you know, we, we talk about the human race as though we've broken with nature you know, humans have gone off in this thing that's not in the natural order. We're doing this thing to the planet that is just a complete mistake and it needs to be stopped, which I agree with. I mean, from a, it depends on your perspective. It depends. On, it's yeah. all perspective. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But but ultimately, you know, we're like, in, can, like cancer is natural. All those things are natural. Like and we're against it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and we're against cancer when it's in our bodies. Yeah. But, you know, it is a natural thing that it's happens. It's a thing that happens. And covid is natural etc it's all just about your perspective you're absolutely correct but i was thinking you know like with with ai and this idea that many people put forward you know i just the other day posted a thing arthur c clark saying you know the future of humanity is probably going to be a smart computer thing he said that in like 1958 or something um and i was just you know i've often thought and i think terrence mckenna put forward the idea that you know we can't stay on earth forever you know, human beings or our intelligence or whatever, because Earth has a finite amount of time, you know, nothing lasts forever. We got to get off planet if we want to survive. 
human bodies are not made for the vacuum of space. We're just not, you know? So it like for our intelligence to go out of the galaxy, it has to do it in some other form, like a, mm. a mechanical type form, some sort of silicone or, you know, metal and, you know, elemental things. So naturally it's like a natural evolutionary thing for us to give birth to a new kind of intelligence that's not monkey based, you know, uh, meat based intelligence. And in that respect, like you go, oh, that makes sense that like, why would nature, as far as we can tell, it's all about this propagation. You know, everything's just about moving forward the genes, you know, whatever um, in the world of, you know, biology. So like, why would nature risk everything on earth? Like, our entire epoch of, of life, you know, in this human experiment, like why would we go to the brink of, you know, we are in a mass extinction event. If you look forward ahead, it, it doesn't look like we're on any kind of course to, it don't look good. It doesn't look like we're on a course to like preserve the way things are. It's not really, I don't know what's, what could possibly happen that it would save the world as it is today and kind of keep it like this for a long time. It seems very unlikely that that's going to happen. So why would nature do that? You know, it's like, well, if we were giving birth to this thing that was going to go populate the fucking galaxy, then that would be a worthwhile thing to sacrifice. Like this particular, uh, you know, epoch on earth right. or whatever you want to call it, you know, this age, you know? And so you go, and you know what, uh, what's this age called? The well, Anthropocene. well, they talk, that's the thing that yeah. they've given it the Anthropocene. Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, and you know, so you go. Well, that makes sense that we would everything could be risked to get off planet with this artificial intelligence and the rate of speeding up that's happening looks like it's got an urgency that's maybe in relation to the amount of time that's left for the human race. Um, and of course, we just look at it like, well, I just want my kid, in your case, you know, to have a life that's okay, you know, that's not going to be just total suffering. Um, and we all just want this thing to go on because it's like, yeah, I want butterflies and polar bears and all this stuff. But, you know, you also look at it and you go 90 something percent of all species that have ever existed on Earth are now extinct. We're all going to be extinct. Humans, polar bears, everything's going to be extinct. It's just when. But I also would say that the idea that it's like not natural it's like that's like saying the asteroid that hit the earth and ended the age of the dinosaurs wasn't natural for no, some exactly. reason it's like that exactly. was a no it's all it's all nature it's yeah it's unfortunate but it's just it's the way it goes i mean you could, it's the way that goes you just everything dies and changes you know and like that's it's just the way of everything like nothing nothing survives anything nothing, that can be talked about yeah, yeah. At least nothing survives except AI. It's funny too. Like it is funny how it's that age is here. Like that's that sci-fi predicted like so long ago. It's, it's really, I mean, just, but, but again, think that's about perspective when you say so long ago, because all this stuff is like just going through the roof. Oh, I know. But, but just to have like, you know, uh, scientists like, um, uh, I don't even know what what uh, branch of science com pre computers what the scientists were that were predicting that this is what's going to happen. Yeah, they all it was all exactly kind of extrapolate. Like, look, ahead. they knew. Yeah, they yeah. knew. Like, like 
they could see like from just basic computing that existed in like the 40s and 50s they were like it was going oh we see where this is going (laughs) this is going this is leading this will lead to art this will lead to where we are now and they predicted it just just when you watch um uh uh 2001 like kubrick's 2001 i mean it's it's just like an ai making decisions it's so it's so modern and that was 1968 that's it's Really, it's really mind-blowing to think that people knew back then before there was a cell phone, before a cell phone was a glint in anyone's, any, like, tech bro's eye, eye, you know. (laughs) It's crazy, man. It's fucking nuts. It's nuts. But, again, I like, yeah, you kind of, you resign yourself to it. Like, well, you can't do anything about it. And I think when we've had this argument or debate or conversation many times where I think what what drives me crazy is this this aspect where I do feel that way. I go, nothing you can do. This is what it is. This is what this is what's going to happen. It's hurdling towards an inevitability, and there's nothing you can do about it. But then the, the other part of my brain, the the resistant part of my brain, the the one that fucking despises the harm doers, realizes that yeah, but the greatest harm is not caused by the majority of this organism that is humanity. Oh yeah, no, it's like, tiny. It's just this these like corrupted psychopathic psychopathic greedy, psych yeah. sociopathic and you just go, "Wait, am I resigning myself to the fate that they have created?" And if what if but and if they were eliminated, would their would this fate still look so bleak and dire? And that's that is that's my brain right there. This two these two things that are existing: this acceptance of fate, and then this resistance to it because it's being controlled by these fucking psychopaths. You know what I mean? That's yeah. That's what I'm always battling with. You know. Well, I don't see the two as being exclusive or like opposed to one another because it's not acceptance of fate. I I like to. Do- do acceptance of what is i I know you know and say like i accept what is as what it is let's start from there but like i'm not separate from what is so if in my heart i don't feel good throwing a piece of plastic in the ocean then it's like okay that's part of reality too and if i am am see capitalism as a destructive system that's leading to i am against to the collapse of the all that is beautiful then yeah, I'm against capitalism. I think it's a bad system. It's obviously a bad system. It might be the greatest system in the world and the best we can possibly do, but just the fact that it's leading to total extinction of the species and millions of other life forms, it can only, it it can't be good. You know, it's like, it just can't be. It is, it is a, it is ultimately a self-destructive, destructive system because it can never, it's never it's never satisfied. done consuming. It's right. never satisfied. We don't live in an infinite, right? Like material world. Like it, it, it eats everything. It will never stop. It must grow. It must eat. It must get bigger. Yeah. And it eats and destroys everything. And it's so when there's you, just no way. Right. Oh, there's no argument. So when like, you look just, at like a Bezos or something, you go, "That's the the epitome of the hungry ghost figure." Where it's yeah. like. 
he cannot if he has 202 billion he yeah. wants 203 billion yeah then if it he just wants becomes 203 billion you want 204 billion right you know it's I mean? just there's no satisfying it yeah when you look at these people who think, are like that when you when you delve into their biographies or whatever the the thing that's fundamental about them is just like ego their egos and their com- their competitiveness it becomes it's not even about being like rich it's about the competitiveness like oh that guy i'm competing with has that number i want the i one. well yeah. what drives me is competing with them so if i'm not competing with them what's my purpose right. and that's you know that's basically just a uh, manifestation of capitalism yeah <laughs> you yeah, know what yeah i mean like the cancer that is capitalism it, it 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 just is there's no way like people can argue about like and there are plenty of people i'm sure <laughs> who argue that capitalism is ultimately it's it's out of control because bad people are controlling it but right, it's ultimately right. the best system no. but it can only it's designed for it bad people to go that way yeah, yeah it's designed for bad people to take advantage right. of you yeah. know what i mean we need compassionate capitalism <laughs> That takes into account. It's like, no, it is a robot that will eat your, yeah. <laughs> it'll bite your head off if it makes a profit for the company. It's not programmed <laughs> to take into any other values. Boy, oh boy. And yeah. see, that's what, when I see that, when I just see like, oh, but it's a, I, you see the mechanism that is making this, like, I know fate is the wrong word, but it's, it's the only word I've got at the moment when I think about the future and yeah. where we're headed and where everything is going to end up. And you see, it really is being perpetrated and perpetuated by psychopaths. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're like every war, every harm, every bit of harm that comes to the earth and to humanity is perpetu- is perpetrated by fucking psychopaths and people who, are obsessed who with just, greed and power yeah give into the system and say that i'm just gonna do my little thing somebody else is gonna do it if i don't do it so i might as well live a comfortable life yeah it's it's, you gotta it's, fight it's a very strange it's a very strange thing and it's very hard it's very dark when you contemplate but, and, the, and fighting them is probably just part and parcel to the, the the bigger picture of where everything is going to end up. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's just critical masses. I mean, revolutions and things, they don't, you know, because I have that thought too, where I think, you know, like that, that guy, that climate change activist who set himself on fire, you know, uh, within the past year or two, he like went somewhere and set himself on fire. Just like as that statement of, I'm just going to, you know, do this to try and draw attention. Yeah. I don't know his name. You don't know yeah. his name. Change nothing, you know. Because sometimes I have that feeling where I'm like, I should just throw myself, my, myself on the front lines of these things that I believe in. Why aren't I give away everything and just, you know, do that? But I feel like well, it's, it's, it's not. Sometimes it's, it works. But that's also that thing of like, like that individuals yeah. that that an individual person can have some. It's a very much a Hollywood myth, you know. How many movies are that the lone white guy? who saves the earth from the aliens or whatever. It's like, that's a myth of disempowerment. It's a myth of saying like, no, we do it on our own. It's your consuming that does the thing. It's your heroic act that's going to change the world. It's like, no, the whole thing happens like the George Floyd protests when the whole country shut down, biggest mass protest. Not one person said, let's start this wave of protest across the country. It was like the mass just hit a thing where we went, circumstances were right, 
enough people just said, fuck this. And that's what's going to happen with all these kinds of revolutionary uh, times. They just coalesce at a certain point. And I think many people, myself included, feel like we're getting to that kind of place where enough people are going, oh, I'm but just it's a, never I'm sustained. Just a... It's never sustained. That's my problem. Like these these things happen. Like, you know, I remember where I felt it the most powerfully was um, the Women's March in 2016, I think it was. And I was in Los Angeles and that was... I mean, it was so powerful. I really did <laughs> mistakenly feel like, oh, the, the world is changing. This It's going to be different. And it was, and then it was like, like people are participating. They figured it out. They realize you do, like people yeah. do have the power as cliche as it sounds, but it's just, that's a, the fact. Like there's way more people than there are way more good people than there are psychopaths. Right. You know what I mean? Controlling things. And when they take to the streets, the fucking psychopaths go running for the fucking caves. You know what I mean? But then, and it was so encouraging. And then I remember a month later was really important elections in Los Angeles, really important local elections. And it was the lowest voter turnout in decades. And I just went, God damn it, man. They did no one. Everyone just, they, I went to the march. I did it. Now I'm just, now I back to, back to, everything's back to normal. We right. did it. You know And it's like, what is that? What is, I think it's Thomas Jefferson quote. I think he said, the pursuit of liberty is a like something like is a sleepless endeavor. I think it's it's something along those lines, and I think it was Thomas Jefferson. I can't fucking remember. Right. But it basically it was just like to maintain liberty, to maintain uh, from keeping the fucking psychopaths from running everything. You can't ever stop right. watching them and combating them. You can never because they don't ever stop. Right. They never stop. This is what they're driven to. That's their purpose, you know, and that's hard to do, man. It's hard to do because you have to like live your life. You know, it's very difficult to commit to being an activist. That's why you look at like and you look at the people that did, you know, Martin Luther King. What did he get? A fucking bullet in the head. You know what I mean? What Malcolm X get? 15 bullets. You know what I mean? You just see it. It's it's a it's very, very. It's, well, the system is ruth. Fred Hampton, you know, the yeah. system is ruth, ruthless, yeah. utterly ruthless. Yeah. I mean, capitalism will. If you're will, an act, if will, you're an actual threat, well, if you're an actual threat, right? But I just see the climate change situation as being one of those things where, and the, and the, how capitalism is metastasizing. That there's going to be a critical mass at a certain point of enough people that just don't have anything to lose. But that's yeah, that's well, that's when world wars happen too. Yeah, you know, is. I mean, and that's unfortunately that's a that is a product of right. having nothing to lose. You know what I mean? Terrorism, and that's air quotes. Right. Terrorism is always a product of people who, ha who, who have, have nothing to lose anymore because they've been so oppressed and victimized that only the craziest among them are able to even act. Anymore, but also yeah. ideology, the power of ideology. Yeah, yeah. So you look at like, you know, a lot of terrorists aren't from the most desperate situations. They're from people who are. I think like, they come out of it. Though, super, you say? 
Well, look at the 9-11, for instance, you know, all the 20 or so people, a lot of them were well-educated people who, you know, were just highly, highly ideologically motivated. What are you looking at? Nothing. Okay. You were moving your feet. Oh, okay. I, like, <laughs> I, I was drawn to what fucking weird thing is going on with your weird ass feet. Shit. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, the one thing yeah, I was, was going to say, though, that, that, you know, for me, I came to a place. I've talked about this on the podcast. I'm looking at a book right now called The Next Civil War by Stephen Marsh, M-A-R-C-H-E. And I remember reading that book in my depression winter of 2021 and being like, I had read the book, we're doomed. Now what, you know, by uh, the guy who wrote um, living and dying in the Anthropocene. And then the, the next civil war and just being like at that place where I went, all right, I have done the research. I have, (laughs) I've reached the darkest. I see zero hope, you know, for, for this world, for the climate, for the country, for, just the human project it is doomed and in my own personal life i don't see any future for myself i see i have not done it correctly i'm doomed it's doomed and i'm just getting older and everything is just and it kind of led me to that place where i'm like you know because i've been suicidal a number of times in my life you know like shopping frequently shopping for shotguns and you know and just like going Okay, you know, I just went to, th- that's where I, I changed my ways because I got to that place where I went, I'm just done with this particular thing. There's no answer to it. There's no, like, one thing I can point to Wait. and say if I, it's like the perspective is wrong. And that's where I came to this idea or this, you know, understanding, whatever you want to call it, of just like, all we ever have is this thing that we call now. And I live in it. And all these thoughts and projections and, and, that's a thing that is it's not the actual things i'm thinking about it's the thoughts themselves that cripple me the things themselves i don't know what those are but i do know what these thoughts are they're thoughts in my head now so that's when i started looking at that and and i gotta say you know i think that that for me is it's not because sometimes i've talked with you about this and you've said well, yeah, well, then if you feel okay and you accept what is, then you don't do anything about these problems. But my, but my, the thing that I came to was that, yeah. No, but the thing that I came to was just the opposite. <laughs> it's that acting from a place of being okay and being free, yeah, I mean, it gives you the leverage to go up against things where you, sure. where you don't have any hope of winning. Yeah. Cause you can go, well, if I'm just a free person now who is living in eternity. Now I'm not waiting for some event to set me free. I'm not waiting for, um, an enlightened age to come and make my life. Okay. Or whatever, no circumstances outside of me are going to make things okay for me. Then I can be the one who steps up when there's no hope and does the thing that I, just because I think it's yeah, the you more, have to be fearless, it's the more I mean, beautiful and honest thing to do. You know, truth is beauty is love. In my opinion, those are three, those three things are the same thing. Beauty, truth, and love are one thing. And they're all just reflections of this understanding that we're not separate. You know, the disease of the billionaire is the ultimate separation. I'm so removed from humanity. I'm so removed from the human condition. Everyone around me serves me and looks at me and is genuflecting to me because I'm I have so much power over everyone. And naturally they just want to like 
live forever and be protected and have, you know, fleets of people protecting them at all time and, and to never have to brush elbows with anyone else, you know, that they don't want to, um, you know, it's, it's a total sickness and it's like the ultimate, that's why in one way they're objects of total revulsion, but also of supreme pity, you know, to be so sick that <laughs> that's what you want to do with your life. And so it's like, you know, that's, that I think is, it's not a decadent thing or a, I don't know, privileged thing to want to get okay with your own mind and heart. I think it's essential for all freedom fighters to come from that place. I mean, maybe people are effective going purely on revenge and hatred, but for me, it's not the best way. I feel out of control. I feel, um, I remember going to all those protests in Portland, you know, with the fascist, uh, you know, Trump supporter people and, and being like, so yeah, lit you, up, you, you know, weren't at, you weren't at peace. So shit. lit up, so easily provoked, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, easily yeah. provoked. So just ready for, you know, just not warfare. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. Seriously. And yeah, being yeah, like, that's not a good feeling. And it's not a feeling no. and it's not a good feeling where you don't, very you're, human. you're not in control. Yeah. You know, you're not in like, you don't have your wits about you. It's, it's not the most effective way to be. I mean, go to battle, but with a, like the samurai heart, you know, where it's like, I am not doing this out of hatred. I am in a calm place acting effectively. You know, um, I just can't think it's ever a bad thing to have your mind be uh, in a place of no, it's, peace it's, it's and essential. It's essential, but that's not very, almost no one can do that or has the time to or has the understanding of how to do it which is really unfortunate <laughs> i think a lot of people are getting into i hope so looking at the mind and the thought i hope i mean it seems like it certainly the the podcasters that i listen to are <laughs> my <laughs> algorithm is definitely seems like we're trending <laughs> <Yeah>. that way <laughs> i don't know isn't that's what i meant. isn't everybody <laughs> looking at buddhist non-dual yeah. uh memes every day <laughs> oh boy well i feel like we Shit. opened up a can of worms for an entirely well let's other um, podcast let's um we always open cans do we want to did you just turn it off or you no. want to wrap no the worms um well let's let's end on a uh let's end talking about uh music and art and things that we love like um guitar playing and bass playing <laughs> i like uh, you know i uh I, because I've just been obsessed with like having the, the classic instruments that I've always dreamt about and just never had the means to. And well, first of all, credit me with getting you back into bass playing. It's true, man. I mean, it's, it was a, I try not to have regrets in life, but it's, it's funny too, because like after my years playing in bands and whatnot, um, like when I moved to LA, I think just the, the psychological breakdown that accompanied that move it, it looking back i just i because now that i'm i mean and i have you to thank for going well why aren't you playing bass anymore and i'm like ah, i'm retired blah 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 what's the point and you were quick to say that's stupid and i was like oh yeah maybe it is and now it's like now playing music again is the, just the salvation that I was looking for. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, 
but um, I do, I think about like the, the years in LA where I just considered myself retire, retired and it was all a product of that, like just how powerful that psychological breakdown I had in like 2008 was that it, it completely eradicated my belief that playing mu- there was any point to playing music and now playing it neg- again. It's, it's very difficult right now to go, Oh wow. I lost 14 years of playing music. What could have happened if I hadn't been so damaged again? I know there's no point in thinking about that way, but I do think about it anyway. So yeah, playing again is just, it's so great. And but I've always been a bass player and I've never played guitar properly except, you know, Ramones, bar, Ramones and undertones bar chords. <laughs> that's like Ramones and tones, Ramones and tones. That's, Ramones and tones. That's pretty. Yeah. That's my guitar playing style. So, I, you know, I'd Ramones. always I always play, but and I couldn't, I couldn't like I couldn't do chords like I think it's why I started playing bass like. You also got me originally to play bass when we were like 16. Because I couldn't play guitar. I tried to play guitar, but my fingers... Fingers are like sausages. My, they kidding. can't. They're, they're big, dumb bass playing fingers. And I could never play guitar properly. So you're like, oh, why don't you play, a ba- there's play a bass? Dumb, no there's, one wants to play bass. There's a dumb guitar called yeah. a bass. <laughs> it's not untrue. It's for dummies. And you were like, not only is it probably easier to learn and easier for your fingers but i remember you telling me this i remember you saying and also no one wants to play bass so it'll be easier to get in a band and i was just like <laughs> fucking sign me up with that logic you know and that's what happened it's i was a it's wise exactly team. what happened i like my the first bands that i got into in san diego were not because i was a good bass player they were be, just because i was a bass player <laughs> yeah. and there just weren't any yeah, you know yeah but um but I and I just so I was always like eh, never even tried again to like try and play guitar properly. But now I'm like, you know, fascinated because I bought just this got this fucking beautiful Les Paul, which you've seen, which has always been my dream guitar. And I'm like, OK, now I'm going to learn how to play it properly. And it is so difficult. It's so hard. Just, you know what? I I thought about it a lot. and I'm like, you know what? This is the is the exact correlation for this is like learning uh, Spanish. Mm. If like what learning Spanish is for me is like what learning guitar is like where I'm very familiar with Spanish grown up around it. I can, I can understand it. Like I can hear people see senor. I, I can understand it basically. And, and I love the sound of it. You know what I mean? It's wonderful. And I've been around it my whole life. Um, but I can't speak it. But I, I, I know you enough feel about it. Like you can. Yeah. But then if I try to speak it, or if I try to actually learn how to do it properly, I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is really hard. I can't do this. Res That's what guitar. That's what guitar is like. It's the exact same feeling where I've been around guitars my whole life. I've played them poorly. I've spoken Spanish poorly my whole life. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's like that. It's like learning. A lang a new language, new language that that I'm really familiar with. You know, I hold a guitar and I'm like, fucking, I've held a million guitars, love them, 
okay, well, play a play a D chord. Oh God, I can't. Or like, st- say a proper use a participle properly in a Spanish right. sentence. You know, <laughs> yeah. like I don't know how. I don't know how to play a fucking G minor chord. You know what I mean? But it's but it is but at this point it is this new adventure that is so much fun and it hurts like my fingers are just aching from doing it but it's it's fascinating what it, and it makes me also realize why people care more about guitar players than <laughs> bass players because it's way it's way harder <laughs> <laughs> are you youtubing a lot oh yeah like a youtube i'm I'm learning how to play guitar the same way that I learned how to play bass. Never took a lesson, you know what I mean? I learned to play just by playing along to, to records, you know what I mean? That I could go, okay, that's simple. Like learning to play along to Ramones records or X, like X Los Angeles, I think was when I learned to play bass off of the bass lines off of X Los Angeles, that's because Ramones were pretty easy. They're, they're great for like learning timing, you know, but they're, far from complex but john doe it's like they're not too hard but they're also inventive Mm. and that that's how i learned so i'm started with guitar i'm just starting with the basics google how to play whole lot of rosie by acdc because they're like they're simple again air quotes (laughs) but they're really they're fundamental and they're still if you don't know how to play guitar they're not easy but they're but it's they're it's approachable like i can i remember when i play i think i was playing learning how to play bad boy boogie mm-hmm. <laughs> and when i figured out just how because i know the chords but i kept playing them like i play them on bass and i'm like it, why doesn't it sound the same oh because he's he's playing this chord like he's playing these two strings at the same yeah. time and when i did it i swear to god it was like learning a magic trick yeah it was like learning what happens in a magic trick that's how the sad the sound and then playing it through my amp and i was like oh my god it sounds exactly the same i feel like a real fucking rube for someone who's been playing music for 35 years it's the joy of learning man that's why (laughs) music is like its own joy just i know i just think about how many bands i've been in and like the guitar players i just look and i'm like ah fucking guitar players man just like yeah, you yeah, great, cool part, you know, and not having any real appreciation for how fucking hard it is to play guitar. Man. Yeah, I mean, everything's hard if you, you don't know. know how to do it. It's like, yeah, I mean, my guitar playing, I don't know what happened in the past three or four years. I just, I think playing the nylon string acoustic and just playing around with jazz chords and D chords, okay, D seventh chords and stuff. <laughs> it's like seventh chords. Take I mean, just realizing like everything is a chord. Anytime you play three notes or yeah. two notes, you got a chord. It's like, yeah, it's just and they all have the names. And then, oh God, just learning like scale. I mean, YouTube. Yeah. I mean, if we had YouTube when we were kids. Oh, okay, but it's it made it's made my brain so lazy because I'll like I'll listen to uh, a a record and go okay, I'm gonna learn to the record and I just go what is he playing? And I'm like, I don't even, I can't find the note. Ah, just YouTube it. Where I'm like, well, you learned how to play bass. You learned how to play music, listening to records before there were computers. So what's wrong with you now? And I think it's just lazy brain where I'm like, well, why would I just 
learn it the hard way when I can just watch this guy show me where my fingers should be. And I agree. Like, why make it harder? I mean, like, if you're if you're seeing a band live in the old days, you'd look at what they were doing with their yeah. fingers. You know, it's like, not like I don't want to know. I don't want to look at the shape. Oh yeah, like and if I just it. and what is a less what's a guitar lesson or something? And that's I never took a guitar lesson, but what it is, it's a teacher showing you where to put your fingers. Right. Yeah. But the other thing with <laughs> guitar is guitar is uniquely an instrument where you can make the same chord like yeah. five different ways. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's you really can't, you can't do that on piano you know so with guitar it's it does help too to see i love that one of the great things about youtube is the uh and if you want to learn a song there's like usually three or four different versions of it being yeah. taught and you'll see oh you can play it tons of different ways then i'll look at the the performer playing it on like a live video and they're doing something completely different and, oh yeah you're like, completely and just what people like when you watch like i'll watch a thing and they'll go this is where you put your fingers and i'm like God, that's really hard for me to put my fingers like that. So I'm going to cheat and do it the wrong way. But then you realize, like, again, you watch videos and you're like, that's not the wrong way. It's just the way that your physiology yeah. operates with this guitar. And I was thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, like Tony Iommi, who's missing two fingers, <laughs> does not hold his fingers the in the proper way. place. Right. You know what I mean? Or like a I forgot who Django Reinhardt. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, was he missing his? He only had two his index only finger two and fingers? His ring finger. Or uh, no, mind blowing. First two fingers. Mind blowing. I forget. Yeah, and I forget. I like Jimmy Page has something where he he doesn't have any fingers. He did no fingers. Page yeah. just palms. He has it. no hands. It's all just AI. It's he's just, all, he's always been Page AI. was a palm guy. Yeah, it's but it's uh it's great. And then you're going nuts with gear. Yeah, I mean, I just you know, it's it's just fun. It probably has to do with just because of this this period of childhood with that I devoted, like uh, said, like <coughs> I'm going to take two years off from doing anything but being a father. And luckily, we're our family's in a situation where I could do that. Like we got we set ourselves up where I could just be dad, which Mr. sounds Mom. like the dream, but it's 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 very it's very difficult having no purpose other than hanging out with a fucking infant you know what i mean <laughs> you realize like oh no i i forgot I, I guess i do like to work conversations a little yeah, limited exactly. but it made me just start thinking about it you know it about things that i like like how am i going to take up my free time because i i can't i'm not getting a job you know what i mean or anything so i just started thinking about well what do you love and i'm like i love like gear and guitars and shit like that so i just started getting into researching and shit and fixing guitars and learning about the electronics and well, you modding. had you had your bass set up by somebody and you were like i could have done that myself and not spent I, yeah it was too much too much money just to do this i was like why did that cost three hundred dollars and i go what did he do and i'm like goot youtube Google. oh i can do all that and then and then it was a rabbit hole of like oh if i Oh, I too. I did the intonation myself. Like, well, what about the electronics? Like, how did how do you do that? And then learned how to solder and put together all the electronics, the guts of guitars and, and still amps and I stuff. Am it's really learning, fascinating. And still, I am growing. Every <laughs> but it's day but I'm what's growing. funny is it's 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 kind of it also goes hand in hand with like this rejection of modern technology or this like 
knowing that like oh god ai technology i can't i can't handle it digital this digital yeah and what that. am i getting ones into zeros, i'm getting into technology from that was invented in the 20s vacuum tubes yeah. you know what i mean and potentiometers that were designed in 1930 you know what i mean that's what i'm that's what i'm i'm figuring out metal <laughs> you know I mean? yeah metal wood. and wood metal and wood and basic electricity you know it's but it is you know it's fast it's fascinating it's pleasing yeah it and that, that base that you made recently uh cool you put together it's like yeah. dream base i know it was really fun to put it together just to go i want this body and that neck and these pickups and this wiring and just did it and it was it's not that hard it was fascinating and I've no. built a dream base for like a fraction of what my dream base would cost if I didn't build it you know? if there's anything YouTube teaches us it's that you can fix the garage door closer <laughs> and <laughs> that not Trump did 9-11 no yeah all right I gotta go feed my baby oh shit okay man feeding baby, um, baby. well it's been wonderful talking to you I'm sure Traeger Method listeners feel the same um, we'll do it again uh yeah, thank you. Thank you. In this video, we're going to be taking a look at how to play the ACDC song, Bad Boy Boogie. Uh, it is actually tuned down half a step uh, on the original recording, but we're in standard tuning. Thing to remember with this one is there is actually two guitars playing, and I've seen on numerous different explanations on how to play this one and this is to me the, probably the simplest uh, way of doing it and probably the most popular uh, so if, it's, if it contradicts the official book uh, this that's kind of why uh, and we're starting off with an A5 power chord two guitars one lettering where we come to the main riff which is mm -hmm. 